This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. These are dark times, there is no denying. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Gabe Green. How's it going? Not much. How you doing? All pretty good, uh, but you know we don't really care about you too much because we have a guest <laughs> this time. Uh, we are joined by Ryan Ashley Wall of the Raw Quiz Show fame. Yes, sir. Uh, here I am in the flesh. I see you wised up, James, and finally took the initiative to introduce him because you knew I'd probably throw you under the table or something. Yeah, it's with with Ryan. There's there's too much familiarity where you I know you would you would feel confident enough to say something bad about me. So I gotta. That's that's what's great about this little group here. Is plenty of banter. Yeah. I, I, so today we are talking about the beginning of the end for the Harry Potter series with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Uh, but before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and also like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and uh, give feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked on Facebook what our listeners thought about this and we got a couple responses. Anthony said, love this one. David said, sometimes it's my favorite. Drew said, genuinely might be my fave. So moving into the behind the scenes story, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was published on July 21st in 2007, two years after the Half-Blood Prince. And it was something of a cultural phenomenon. Uh, it set the Guinness World Record for the most copies sold in the first 24 hours with 8.3 million. And so along with the series being the highest selling recorded series in in a literary history of uh, record recorded being important because as i said with a uh, sorcerer's stone others have sold more but we just don't know about it we don't know exact numbers uh, so along with being the highest recorded selling series in, in uh, history all of the individual books are also within the top 15 highest recorded recorded sellers as well as far as individual books and to make matters crazier uh this film came out only 10 days after the release of, of uh, the order of the phoenix film I just that had to be just an amazing time to be a fan. Yeah, I am kind of bummed that I came late to the fandom. Yeah, that's the worst thing. Whenever you you find out you love something, and you're like, oh, nobody else, nobody's going through this zeitgeist now. Like, dang. That's what, <laughs> what was it like when Oliver Twist <laughs> first came out? I need to know. As far as the adaptation to film, uh, the choice to split the final film into, into two parts was initially uh, proposed by Warner Brothers uh, producer Lionel Wigram. Um, this had been, they, they considered this for Goblet of Fire due to the book's length, but it was shot down at the time. Initially, David Heyman didn't want to do it, but eventually uh, the team agreed that this would be the best way to adapt the book. David Yates uh, once again returned to direct the final two parts. Uh, there were rumblings of the possible return of Alfonso Cordon, or maybe even finally snagging a Guillermo del Toro, but nothing came of that. Um, and uh, Steve Clovis once again returned to write both parts. In the cast, we actually have... Uh a few new additions this time. Uh, we have Reese uh, Ifans as Xenophilius Lovegood, um, Bill Nye as Rufus Scrimgeour, who makes his uh, cinematic debut in the series now, um, Donald Gleason as Bill Weasley, a Weasley if there ever was one, uh, Guy Henry as Pious Thickness, Peter Mullen as Corbin. Hey, 
Guy Henry. That's a that's a Tarkin. <sighs> I wasn't even thinking about From, that. From uh, Rogue One. Yeah. Oh, I guess he just he fits sleazy bureaucrat. <laughs> uh, Peter Mullen as Corbin Yaxley. Um, Carolyn. Pe- I love him so much. He's got like he just looks like a British brawler to me. Like yeah, he looks threatening. Um, Carolyn Pickles as Charity Burbage, um, and David Real as Elphias Doge. And also we have actors uh, basically playing two roles with David O'Hara playing Albert Runcorn and Harry as Albert Runcorn, Stefan Rodri as Reg Catterwall, uh, also Harry's um, the person he polyjuices into, and then finally is Sophie Thompson as Mafalda Hopkirk. And a couple other actors like that that are worth mentioning are R- Ralph Innocent shows up as a Death Eater uh, for a couple seconds, um, and um, Michelle Farrelly, uh, probably best known as uh, Catelyn Stark from Game of Thrones, she plays uh, Hermione's mom in the uh, initial Obliviate scene. So, along with that really long list of main characters, there's a couple famous actors that pop up here and there as well. And then lastly, uh, Michael Byrne as Gellert Grindelwald appears. People might know him as Vogel, the German general from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now I recognize him. Okay, that's cool. This is how we say goodbye in Germany. <laughs> I like the Austrian way better. Me too. So um, although, although they were splitting the book into two films, they opted to film both parts simultaneously. Um, this has been done several times before, uh, notably with films like uh, Back to the Future 2 and 3, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, Matrix Reloaded, and Revolutions. Um, and s- since then, we've had like the Hobbit trilogy, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, and um, the possibly upcoming Avatar sequels, uh, if they ever show up. Although often they'll have they'll have a, um, a back-to-back production where they'll shoot one and go directly into the, the next one. This one they actually shot simultaneously. Bruno Delbanel uh, opted not to return, so Yates hired Portuguese cinematographer Eduardo Serra to shoot the two the two parts. Um, the vast majority of, of his work has been on French films, uh, but there are some movies like What Dreams May Come, Blood Diamond, and a little movie called Unbreakable that you might have heard of, which is I think might be Shyamalan's best looking movie. Which is that's a tall order because he's done some amazing looking movies. Uh, for the first part, they opted with a more handheld cinema verite approach to the film, uh, which was which would be quite the departure from the very painterly style of half of the Half Blood Prince. This film had a, this thing had a ridiculous filming schedule. It went from February of two thousand nine to June of two thousand ten. Oh, Lee! Yeah, like eighteen months basically of almost straight shooting. And once again, they shot at the Leavesden Film Studios in England. But at this time, they also had to use the Pinewood Studios, probably due to just the massive scale of the production. They just ran out of space and had to create sets elsewhere. And after filming The Deathly Hallows, uh, Warner Brothers bought the Leaves and Studios to serve as their European base, and they've turned part of it into a, per- a permanent tourist exhibit uh, for the Harry Potter production with sets and props and like exhibits and all that. Um, that's that's a place where I want to make a pilgrim. Like I want to go there and to uh, New Zealand to the you know the Hobbiton and all that. My bucket list is just going to be, like, film locations. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I'm worth mentioning, uh, during filming, uh, David Holmes, uh, who, had, who had been a Daniel Radcliffe stunt double for all eight films, uh, suffered a spinal injury that left him partially paralyzed and uh, forced him to retire. Uh, 
Interestingly, though, he actually started a podcast last year called uh, Cutting Stunts, where he interviews stunt performers. Um, There's a lot of big names on there. I looked it up. Um, you want to check it out. It's uh, called Cutting Stunts. But, um, and I, I, I always love filmmaker interviews, so I might, might actually go and listen to some of those. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, for the film score, uh, Dennis Hooper... Wait. Nicholas. I was Hopper. Yes, (laughs) I saw Hooper, and my mind just said, "Say Dennis Hopper." (laughs) For the film score, um, Nicholas Hooper did not actually return with Yates this time. Instead, it was scored uh, by composer Alexander Desplat, who also returns for part two later. Also, uh, I should mention um, the animator uh, Ben Hibben was the guy who designed and directed the animated Tale of Three Brothers sequence for the film. Bravo, good sir! Beautiful. Uh, the film ended up having its world premiere um, on November 11th, 2010 at Leicester Square, uh, and then it had its wide release on November 19th. So moving into our discussion on The Deathly Hells Part 1, I want to get your guys' uh, history with this film in particular. Um, so Ryan, uh, when did you first see this film, and uh, what have your thoughts on it been over the years? Okay, so uh, this this time we get some Harry Potter history that's uh, contemporary. Because uh, I saw this opening night, and by that point, I had read the entire series. I was hyped. I was pumped. I was ready to witness the beginning of the end. And at the time, I remember thinking, that was really good. And I, I wasn't really sure how I felt about it first watch, because it's so different from all the other ones. Um, over time... I have grown to truly appreciate this film. I think it is, with, without stepping on the toes of a later discussion, it is in the running for the best in the series, in my opinion. And uh, that's just come from repeated, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Harry Potter nut. I've rewatched this series probably five or six times, and this individual film probably seven or eight times. So, um, yeah, and my appreciation has only grown. I, I, that doesn't happen with every movie, but it's <laughs> happened with this. All right. Uh, how about you, James? Well, so I actually watched this one very shortly after. Like, actually, maybe even, I'm trying to remember, I think it was within a few days of finishing the Deathly Hallows book. That was like last week, right? Okay. <laughs> well, have fun talking to Ryan. Uh, <laughs> so I, this one was the one that was like most fresh on my mind. And so we're, we're having our marathon, we're watching through the movies, and we, we usually end up doing two a day. And so the last, the last day, was, it was Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2. Um, and I, what I knew about Part 1 and 2 is that for some reason, and I don't know if this is just weird things that I've observed or if there's something to this, it feels like people kind of, like they really love one of these and they're like, that was pretty good, I guess, kind of, to the other one. Like, on a lot of rankings I see, if one is ranked pretty high, part two is ranked on the lower end and vice versa. And so I was like, I don't really know where, like, I didn't know where y'all fell on this. I didn't know, I had no anticipation of where I was going to fall. And so watching this one, when it ended, I was like, what? <laughs> Well, this is on the high end for me. Like, I I kind of immediately fell in love with this movie. Um, 
I loved the just the slower pacing. I love the kind of the stagnation that you feel in the plot and the that kind of just depressing tone of like, like we really don't know what we're doing. Like it was just it felt so bold for the series, especially like part one of this big finale. And we're just kind of like roaming around with our tent being like, I don't know what to do. And so, but because of that, it like, it, you give so many great dramatic moments with the characters. There's a lot of really like well done, like, like well, I'll talk about all the specific scenes that I like. I'm sure the review, but all that to say, I really, really loved it the first time. And I really, really loved it the second time. Yeah, so I watched this, you know, almost immediately after finishing the books, and I loved this one. And it's it's always been near the top of my rankings, and I've kind of been on the the side that you know is defending this one against all the haters, um, and people who are wrong who say it's boring and all that. Um, so don't have all you know, not not a huge history, but uh, I've always liked it. Um, so the the first thing I want to talk about is just. Again, David Yates really upends his style and gives us an entirely new visual, not only just look, but language. Um, it's just interesting. Like looking back, like like Order of the Phoenix was pretty much like a polar opposite of the half look print stylistically. This one is is I think it's in between. I'd say probably closer on the half blood prints and it it doesn't have any of um any of Order of the Phoenix's energy, and it, it really plays with stillness and just kind of mood, like uh, Half-Blood Prince does, but differently. Like, the, the mood of Half-Blood Prince was warmth and safety and just kind of chilling, and, and, and th there's danger, but it, the danger's outside. Here, the, the stillness is depression and fear, and it's like, it, it, it just... It, it gets everywhere. Even like looking at the sets and the costumes, they're ever the sets are all just a little grubby, a little ragged. The costumes are a little ragged. Like it feels like it feels like, like a, a World War II film. Like the the aesthetic, the tone, just the visuals of the, you know of Britain that we're used to. Yes, it's not it's not a period piece in that regard, but just the the kind of language of it is like oh, this is a war film. Um, even though there's really not a lot of war to it, it just has that vibe to it so like even in and the way he plays with stillness is just uh, again a lot of people they find like they find the half the boring they find this boring but for me like the, the stillness is everything i just get so engrossed and absorbed by just the way he composes shots the way he you know plays with the sound and, and the music or in this film the lack of music there is i think like a third of this film might be either without music or music so quiet you can barely hear it um there's so much just silence um, like whenever they go into the forest and just like they, they almost like they're entering into this weird limbo. We'll talk about all this later, but just this, I find, I find the style again is so drastically changed from the previous films. It's just so palpable and powerful to the themes and ideas and everything that this film is trying to be is wrapped up in how he, how he shot and edited the film. So I, I can imagine there's a, there's a lot of times where like, I really love something that people, other people don't. And I'd be like, I can't even imagine why that doesn't work for you. In this, I can understand, I guess, why people find it slow, but it's like that. I don't. I don't know. It. I, I think he he found a way to create 
like this sense of of paranoia and and tension and stuff that like it never really feels slow to me because you're always like somebody's about to go off somebody's about to find us somebody like i don't know you you're kind of even for like 10 minutes at a time kind of like clutched waiting like okay we're if anybody finds us we're, we're dead and so there's a sense of like looking over your shoulder the whole movie and so i never really think too much about like oh well technically we haven't really done a lot yet because i'm we're still just we feel like as mundane and bored as it may seem like we're we're like one look away from having like voldemort himself at this point like he is a he's a player in the game now he's out there like from the first scene and so we're just that feeling of like at any given moment like the defining moment of like this last battle could happen if if we're caught and so i don't know i i don't ever feel like we have time to to be like oh there's not a lot going on is there yeah i i think um gabe you said a war movie and to me it's almost like um it's uh, it's almost like a lot of like uh holocaust centered movies hmm. where where not people are captured but people are hiding like defiant you know like and wait are you saying the yeah, death defiant. eaters are like nazis this is a very new interpretation wait a second <laughs> yeah i mean but i i say that and i also i draw another parallel that deathly hallows part one and part two in a way sort of play off like the two halves of titanic <laughs> where one of them sets up the stakes of everything and the other is bombast, yeah. you know? So granted, I think that that's a parallel in kind and not in quality. <laughs> so, so, um, hey, I like Titanic. I do too. I love it. I think it's James Cameron's most unfairly hated film. And that's saying something because Avatar's right there too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but I say that to, to say this, like, um, all that stuff people find boring about this one is everything that makes part two even worthwhile to me. Um, I think it's good to spend time understanding what a world led by Voldemort looks like. And I think this film does a great job of showing us that because it's terrifying if you're not a specific narrow set of kind of person. And even not not so great for even them. <laughs> I'll say, yeah, and I think you know that's the the cinematography is something that I just always love when I'm watching a Yates film. Um, this one they brought in uh, Eduardo Serra, and they go. It's a very blue gray kind of. It's more more colorful than uh than Half Blood Prince, but still very muted. Outside of like, there's occasionally they'll have a happy scene, and the colors you like watch the saturation of the colors go up. Um, but it, it's so cold, and uh, it's funny. Like he was—he's always, always talking. Uh, is always talking about how he he wanted to bring in a, a cinema verite approach for um, part one, which is you know ha handheld, Some, sometimes shaky cam, but usually it's just handheld, a bit more loose. Camera's usually a little bit closer. But the funny thing is, I think he in his heart he's just he loves just austerity and grandeur. So even though yeah, he's he's trying to make it a little more loose and handheld he can never resist going for the gorgeous wide shot mm. and this film is just 
packed to the brim with these really stark, beautifully composed images. Yeah, it's the thing is, both feel very notable as well. Like, whether it's the forest chase where, like, I mean, he's going, like, full shaky cam, or I really, the, uh, the fight in that little cafe, I like, really stands out to me. The sound design in that is, like, top-notch. It's um, a gunfight. Yeah, he exactly. Like, it like a gun battle. Yeah, yeah it's so, yeah. it's like that, I don't know, it's, it's so cool. Uh, it, it feels... It's an old Western saloon fight, but with magic and in a diner. It's, and that's that's <laughs> another instance of, like, pulling out any sort of music. Like, there's no music during that scene. That's really cool. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, the, the action in this in particular, because there's, you know, like, for being called boring, there's actually quite a few action set pieces going on um and it is dangerous feeling i think in a way that um isn't isn't necessarily there for a lot of the battles in previous harry potter films so something that i really like about this especially with that first one is like before a lot of the we're, we're fighting in these big fantastical sets and a lot of the scenery like it's it's architecture it's it's it, it's things set in stone, you know. There's not a lot of just um, everyday paraphernalia lying around. It, like, it's these big things. And, like, in this cafe fight, there is something fresh. Uh, like, it just it feels new and exciting in this series when, like, we are in, like, our world. And so we're, to see a spell, like, fly, you hear the noise and you see, like, the cups fly and the glass shatter. And like, it, it it's it's exactly like like the way you'd shoot a shootout, where like the bullet hits something, you hear the ping, you see the debris fly in the air, and so instead of like these big open spaces where we're just like taking in and like being in awe of these magical powers, here it's like we're we're seeing all there, there's some level of interactivity with the environment that makes it feel dangerous. Like oh crap, I I have reference for like what that thing is and it just moved past and it like shot it across the room like these are these are dangerous things and so you feel that that kind of cinema verite kind of we're we're just kind of boots on the ground with these people moving around with them and then you get hit with some of the most incredible compositions the series has like i i think that the uh the montage with the name reading is probably like top mm. three favorite sequences of the whole series. I love that scene so much. And literally cut after cut, every single image in that montage is like hanging on a wall. This is freaking gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. So many great establishing shots yeah. too. And most of our establishing shots in this series have been of Hogwarts, so it can be a little bit stale in that regard. Yeah, he he really <laughs> oscillates between various styles. Like you have like the Half Blood Prince, very austere, beautiful wide shots. Then kind of that the the uh, the more une the uneasiness when they go into the Muggle world. He goes like full Guy Ritchie in the Forest Chase, and then yeah. in the Ministry, the Ministry is a bit more uh, Order of the Phoenix, and like there's there's even a, a sequence of like it's all real slow mo, like he. He's able to like figure out like what is what kind of mood does this this sequence need, and use it there. Um, although I think the, the primary approach is probably more of the Half Blood Prince uh, grandeur and austerity. Um, that kind of brings us into just the pacing and adaptation that is happening here. This is a question that has to be asked. How do you feel about this film uh, being split into two books? Because 
this this I this is kind of the first one to do that. Um, of you know, and then it kind of started a craze where all the YA adaptations were doing it, and that trend got a lot of hate. And some of that hate does filter back to this one. And for me, I think it's the uh, the choice is entirely justified um, because it's a you know a great big book and. I, I I like Harry Potter, so <laughs> I want to see more, and I'm never bored for a second. Uh, how do you guys feel about it? I'm assuming since we like this movie, you're in favor. Yes, yes. Um, I, I'll say like for for a lot of those YA things, it was like ill advised, but for, with this one, it 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 serves the first half better than the second, I think. But um, that being said, like it is just a honking book, and a lot of the problems we had with adaptation of the previous ones was choices they made to leave some things in or take some things out or to leave half an idea in and not fully fleshed out. Or, you know, I mean, even like they're constantly correcting for things like Scrimger was supposed to be in half (laughs) Prince, you know, and like Bill shows up for the first time. Yeah. And like all of that stems from, having a standard runtime to do what can be pretty meaty books. And the benefit here is like, this is the Deathly Hallows is like the one, one book that I can think of the adaptation and not go, man, they really cut a core thing out. You know, like, I mean, I think that's true of Chamber of Secrets and Sorcerer's Stone too, but that's because those were also very short (laughs) books. (laughs) But, but here, you know, there's, there's almost everything is fully represented represented anyway yes <laughs> and and uh not to give too much of a spoiler but the, the small things that are not represented here go on to be represented in the fantastic beast film so it's uh it's pretty neat that we get a full package out of a Harry Potter adaptation. Yeah, I'll go back to you, James, but uh, the, the, what you're talking about, where they're having to play catch-up so much in this, like, there are little things that were left out that are perfectly fine and understandable because they're not important to this story, but then that adds up as those as this character or this element becomes more and more important to get to the end, like, oh, crap, we need all this. Like, I was writing down throughout the film, like, all the things that are int- either introduced or have to be hurriedly reintroduced because they've been absent for a while, so you got Rufus Scrimjaw should have been introduced in Half of the Prince. Sirius's mirror would have been Goblet of Fire. Bill Weasley, Goblet of Fire, and his engagement with Floor. With Floor, um, then you have to introduce Lupin, Ta- Lupin and Tonks' romance, marriage, and pregnancy. <laughs> and that, that scene where in like twenty seconds, Bill Weasley comes in, he's introduced. Oh, he's he's engaged to uh, uh, Floor, and then and was attacked by. A- uh, yes, <laughs> by a werewolf. Yeah, and then you, yeah. And then Lupin and Tonks walk in. Oh, they're they're romantically engaged. Oh wait, they're married. Oh, and she's pregnant. <laughs> it's like all this stuff in like twenty seconds. It's the worst example, but other things like introducing the trace, where you know how they find underage wizards. Um, introducing my Nuggets Fletcher. They have to reintroduce creature. Reintroduce Dobby. Who poor Dobby hasn't been there since Chamber of Secrets. Uh, introduce Aberforth. Matilda Bagshot. Godric's Hollow. Like. Like those two, those last three things, they're not like ever vital to a story before that, but they're just in the world. Like we've heard about them several times. Also, um, Sirius's brother Regulus, that him as well. It's just these. <laughs> That's barely a thing in this. <laughs> yeah, like, like, but he was mentioned, I think, in Order of the Phoenix. 
Um, so what you have is yeah. some of those are important to the plot. Others are things that really could never have been mentioned, but it's, it's kind of an information overload. Um, and I, I think it affects the first act most of all, but there are points where I think it does, particularly as you're getting into the Deathly Hallows and it gets very technical where it's just like, they're really having to play catch up. And this is also probably an issue where Roland didn't tell them much that he was doing where they they only knew, you know, they only knew as far as the books were published at the point of production of the film. Um, so there's, there's a bit of guesswork and it's, it's not a huge problem here. I think it becomes more of an issue in the second film, but it's de definitely something you notice. Is that something that, that stood out to y'all at all? Oh, for sure. To me, uh, like the thing is in, in the books, these, a lot of these things get more play time and here it, it, it's not to the extent of like, when we talked about the Half-Blood Prince, like you could remove that book from the movie and you still have a fully functioning story like that. It's there because it has to be the name. And so like we, if it's the name of our movie, we have to include it kind of thing. And it's not maybe to that same extent here, um, but you still get a little bit of that. I, I think with like Regulus, where we have to bring him up, we have to acknowledge this because we ended our last movie with you know RAB stole this light. Like what is that supposed to mean? We have to answer it, and so we're just like, oh, serious is brother Regulus. Anyways, moving on. Da 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 da. And like we just kind of like, wait, why <laughs> did he steal it? Why was he wanting to destroy it? What, what was his motive? Like. That's a, we've we've kind of we spent that scene that really nice scene with Sirius talking about the family tree and how how much of a, you know, black sheep he was within his family. Like, not his brother was trying to kill a Horcrux. Like, what the <laughs> heck? But we just we and, and it ties into the creature subplot that was basically cut from Order of the Phoenix too. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so and again, it's be like it's like you said, it's there are these things that we haven't really been able to include. And they accumulate to something that is kind of meaningful. And so there are moments where you're getting like just a little bit of lip service. And I, I had the same thing. I don't, did I miss a line? I feel like you just, you see Sirius's mirror and I'm like, does, yeah, did, that, that was never mentioned before. Okay. I was like, wait, wait a second. What, what is, even I had to remember, I was like, oh wait, yes, yeah, Sirius gave him that so that we never got any of that. And that, and now I'm imagining like what is this movie like what are moments of this movie for people who haven't read the book like Harry looks down and he sees an eye and he's like help us I'm like if I if I didn't know the book I'd be like what the frick just happened why is why is he looking at an eyeball and a glass mirror at like what and they never say it's serious as a mirror do they no mm. I don't think it's ever well may, maybe in Deathly House Part Two when it becomes when they meet Aberforth possibly. Um, yeah. I don't remember it, but I could be wrong. Yeah. There's a good bit of, as you know, this thing that has definitely been in the <laughs> yeah. films before now. Um, and, and the thing is, like, like, the great thing about, one of the many great things about J.K. Rowling's world building is, I feel like everything that, everything that is introduced is mentioned several times in an offhand way before it ever becomes important. Um, so it, there's so rarely that, Rarely do you have a moment where, like, oh, we're introducing an entirely new concept. Like, Matilda Bagshot, we've heard her name, like, at least a half dozen times throughout the books, just in reference to the, you know, the schooling and, the, and, the, and Hogwarts and all that. Or Hermione just citing <laughs> history of magic. Yeah, I think well, I'm going to front load some of my problems. And, I, and that, my second one is the pacing. I, I think this film is a little awkward for the first, I'd say, 20 minutes. Um, 
basically up until they they began their ministry heist i i have a little bit of i have a kind of a hard time getting into it it's it's had a similar problem with the order of the phoenix like before they get to hogwarts it's like bang boom boom we're just kind of rushing through events that need to happen and then they you know they start the ministry heist and the film finds its flow and it's perfect from then on um but just the, the things they have to have to set up and we're just covering a lot of ground and, and you're like, oh, we're at a wedding. I, okay. I never met Bill before. And I guess he likes Fleur and okay. But like, it's, it's, there's a bit of like, where is this going? Uh, for, for a while. Um, never to the point where it's like actively boring, but I just, I do have a hard time getting into it at the start. Yeah. Having an entire Weasley brother to introduce is a bit, they, it's a bit, been much to catch up on. What helps them out is whenever he walks into the room, you're like, "Yes, that's a Weasley." Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yep. and he looks absolutely nothing like his father. Like <laughs> the two could not be more different. Um, it is well, ironic. His actual like, father. Yeah, his actual. Uh, yeah. I, I was thinking that it, it's really funny. He's like he's standing in the same room with his real father. And it's like, he looks exactly like the son of his fictional father and couldn't look any anything like his real father. It's just a funny little bit. Like, if they were to cast his father and son, I'd be like, why didn't they cast that other guy? He looks way more like him. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with those issues. And that kind of surprised me and started to worry me on this viewing because my memory of this movie is just, it was so positive. Like, I remember it ending... Whenever, you know, the, the wand goes to the sky and you get that, like, the classic sky beam that's going to forever be cool looking. Uh, <laughs> and I just remember... Before sky beams became a <laughs> Exactly. And I was just like, this, <laughs> what a movie. I was so taken by it. And so we, we're like 15, 20 minutes into this on my rewatch. And I'm like, it's not bad, but did I overhype this? Like, that was a genuine worry. I'm like, I forgot how fast we move. I forgot how much they got to introduce. I, like, we're just, we're here, then we're here, then we're here. I'm like, we're already on the, like, the wedding's already been crashed, and we've barely, like, Scrimger is, like, he's dead. We just met him, he's dead. Like, it was, I was like, this is, I don't know, I started to get genuinely worried that I was just, I was so taken by the, the first viewing. Fortunately, like you said, I mean, I, I think I start to really, like, love the movie a bit before that just because I think the the fight in the cafe is just so freaking cool to me. So, like, really, mm -hmm. it's, it's from that point on, I'm like, okay, you... And, and I'll say, too, I'll add as well that it actually starts as strong as a Harry Potter movie does. Yeah, the, the opening start. is great. My criticisms do not apply it, to that. Yeah, yeah it, it, once you start with the Seven Potters situation is when we start to get to those yeah. issues but like that the opening and then to i, I agree with james and then at the diner onward it's the regular and creature stuff that takes me out starts worrying me a little bit um whereas like all this stuff has to be you know reintroduced oh yeah, but then, yeah. i get that yeah but I, yeah fair I, yeah th this is not a blanket criticism of those first 20 minutes there are a lot of great isolated sure. moments and yeah, it's more just kind of an overall that feeling shot, of an though. of an of investment um i i love a strong start like opening like eye shot on scrimger with like such a dour monologue and then this, i'm like oh we you're you're starting that, strong that whole opening sequence is just oh, the, the oblivious oh. excellent 
and it's such good storytelling. Like, we don't, we don't, if you don't, even if you don't know what the Obliviate charm does, you just see their faces go blank. The picture, you know, she fades out of the pictures and she walks away. Like, it's all visual storytelling. We know exactly what's happening. And the music is crushing uh, you at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. I, I'm thinking for most of this, we'll kind of just go chronologically through the film, but I, I do want to talk about just kind of the overall metaphor as I see it of this film. Kind of, if or, or uh, Half Blood Prince is feels like the last, like, so the last year of school, it's you were it's that kind of weird limbo phase of being on in the, you know on the cusp of adulthood, you know trying to enjoy your childhood but knowing that it will end very soon, um, and just everything we know about the world is going to change, and this film this film is being very unceremoniously thrust into adulthood, um. Like the, the the thing you mentioned, um, James, about you know the, the the fight in the cafe, how it's in the it's weird because it's in the Muggle world. There is a really incredible transition that happens there. Like you, we're in the wedding, everything's happy. Then the Death Eaters arrive, and you know she apparates, and it, it's like, bam, you're from a, you know a place of safety to we're just out in the world, and this is so strange. And, and I love that it's not it's not from, you know. It's not from the Weasley from the the burrow to like a forest or some other ma- or just straight to Grimwald Place, another magical location. This is from you know the burrow, the most magical place there is, to downtown London. And there's buses and there's crowds and like it's it's really emphasizing that feeling of just like we are so far out of our element. We're, we're we don't know what we're doing, um, and that whole thing of just being lost and i feel like that's also like when when they go into the woods and the woods also feel like their own little limbo where it's like it's like try, you're like you're starting out into adulthood like where i don't really understand you know, how this works what am i going to do and, and just, there's a lot of just like feeling of just frustration and i feel like it, it's kind of like where it, I, I i'm assuming this is true for a lot of people regardless of how how wonderful your parents might be there is a little bit of kind of frustration and resentment like why didn't they prepare me for this like why didn't they like these are so many things that i now have to do as an adult that i feel like i never had any preparation or just understanding of and just it's just it, you can feel incredibly you know draining and swamped and like why did no one tell me about all these things um that's building off of like you know harry's frustration with dumbledore like his uh the disill- the disillusionment he's having with Dumbledore, where before he's always been this, you know, it, for the first couple, you know, books, he was, you know, kind of God almost. Like he, he knows all he's, and even as, but even as we kind of um, saw more and more cracks through Order of the Phoenix and Half Blood Prince, it, it was always still the, with the greatest respect. And now we're like, we're here, we're on his mission. And we're learning things about him that we never knew. And, you know, it's like, you know, finding out your parents have flaws and it had, or just your heroes. Like there's, it feels like, I don't, I'm I'm assuming this is probably true throughout all of history, but it feels like it's, it's really modern thing with the internet where every time, every single hero that's ever been elevated by anyone, there's always another person who's damn determined to, 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 you know, to bring them down, to find any kind of dirt on them to, to, you know, they, they, they weren't, they weren't as good as you thought, which it's usually true. But usually, they say it's the opposite extreme. Um, so it's, it's, it's playing with all of that. Where like, as you grow up and you realize that your 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 parents or your heroes or whatever 
whatever figures you look up to, oh wait, they were also flawed. And it's, it's, there's a whole lot of turmoil going on. And I feel like that, it, it builds so perfectly out of the metaphor of Half-Blood Prince, you know, being on the cusp of adulthood and this one being, you know, very unceremoniously kind of thrown into the deep end. Yeah. I think part of that is owed to the fact that, um, I mean, we've been going through six years at Hogwarts and now there's no Hogwarts, you know? So the safety and structure of a school year that has loose, more loosely defined the films, more rigidly defined the books, but, you know, even within this film universe, you know, you know, they're going to go to school, they're going to have their classes, they're going to, there's some threat at the school, but the school is largely safe. And that all the whole rule, rule book is thrown out here, you know, like there's no Professor McGonagall to get them out of a bind. There's, you know, it's it's like Hogwarts if everyone was Snape or Malfoy, <laughs> you know, so um, that that mundanity is breached. And of course, you know, as an as a story about growing up, that school component is important to the other stories, just as the lack of school is important to the fact that this is a, an adulthood or a sudden adulthood metaphor. Plus, of course, it's under heightened fantasy bad circumstances. But but yeah, I think it's uh it it is a very fitting uh thesis for for this film. The darkness of adulthood, the unpreparedness, the shock, the horror, the directionlessness, even like for a lot of this movie, they don't know what to do. You know, <laughs> so yeah. All that structure is gone. Yeah, that mm. that lack of structure is something that you re- you just feel in such an incredible way, both in the book and in the film, where it's like, it is, it is the lack of like, wait, just go get McGonagall, <laughs> just go ask Double to just go do any number of these things, and it's to you you just really start as, as chapters go by and scenes go by you start to get the sense of, like, we haven't seen any of those people for a long time. Like, we we don't have anybody to turn to. In fact, we don't really want to turn to anybody because we can't really let anybody know where we are. We can't let anybody know what we're doing. We're trying to keep the lowest profile. So you just feel that isolation, that removal from everything that has so intentionally defined the series. Uh, and And, like, that's... That's why it, like the kind of pacing and feel the movie has feels like a, a necessary consequence of all of those ideas is it's there's kind of a tense boredom where you're like I somebody has always told me what to do <laughs> and now I nobody's telling me that I don't have anything to go off of I'm like I'm here I'm in the world I've all of my life I've seen adults out there doing their thing and now that i'm there i'm like wait what i should be in the order of the phoenix right now but I, that's not really th- like i it's just us uh i have a vague mission and that's about it yeah it's almost <laughs> like life yes <laughs> mine just the wizard nazis thankfully sometimes <laughs> depends where you are in sometimes. history <laughs> sometimes you get the wizard nazis too uh. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I think it would kind of just run through various scenes that I wanted to mention. Uh, 
the, the film opens, we, we talked about the Oblivion sequence, but then we kind of go to the Death Eater headquarters. And again, that's another, feels like a change where we're fully in the Death Eater's POV now. And we're just having an entire scene with all these you know creepy people sitting around a table and, and uh, Baltimore monologuing. A couple of things I really liked is uh, I, the work they did on Jason, uh, Jason Isaacs is like really subtle. It's like a slightly higher forehead, just very slightly ruffled hair and a day's growth of beard and very small bags under his eyes. And yet, when paired with his performance, he you know this is a broken man before he even says a word. And they don't do anything all that crazy to him. Like He's not wildly different. It's just really good, subtle makeup and performance. Um, and he's so pathetic. Oh, it's so sad. Ooh. Almost. Yeah, I, I also want to give it to, uh, to the, the pious thickness line with the one hears many rumors <laughs> you know like that that is such a and spoken like a true politician like i, I know like evil boardroom is kind of like a a negative stereotype trope here no it's uh, not but <laughs> i love evil <laughs> boardroom I, <laughs> I like this evil boardroom scene honestly it's so good hey evil needs and, bureaucracy too yeah also yeah. man something that <laughs> sticks out is just I, I forget her name, but having the the character just like bent over, floating the whole time is so ominous and like scary. <laughs> like that is a dark, dark scene. Charity Burbage, there. who we are also now being just introduced, to. Uh, which I I don't. Yeah, but in that case, I think that's also a book thing. I don't remember her having any kind of. No, 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 no. I'm I'm not in any way slamming it as an adaptation problem. It's just something else that. Yeah, but oh, that that's it's so freaking dark. Like these are not children's movies anymore. You know, which is which is fitting because the series has grown up. You know, very literally. Just having her like look to Snape. You know, like the this her her peer, her coworker for years. And to not be able to do anything like that, see, it's, oh, it is brutal. Mm-hmm. And when you know, when you know the, the truth about Snape too, that just makes it that much like mm, yeah. more uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, just the absolute disrespect with which Voldemort snaps <laughs> Lucius's wand. <laughs> oh, he's so evil. Uh, that, that brings us to like the, the seven Harry's scene. Um, this is another scene that I really love, in spite of all the crazy exposition we got to get at the opening. Uh, just the the uh, I love how the entire mood of the film changes when Ron walks in the door. Um, like it's, it's been absolute gloom and fear up till then. Then you're Ron and Hermione walk in, and it's like life and color kind of seeps back in for a bit. Um, <laughs> and they they really did good by uh by um. Bad Eye Moody, you know, this is going to be his last uh, last appearance. So they really gave him a lot of like great lines. You know, yes, he's absolutely gorgeous. Now let's get him undercover before someone murders him. <laughs> it tastes like goblin piss. <laughs> yeah. experience. Yes, all very touching. Let's go. Um, but yeah, just the, the effect of the, just the camera going in the circle as each a- actor starts morphing into Harry. Um, and just when they're all Flores standing around, you know, as for Harry, yes, the real Harry. Where the devil are you? <laughs> He's like way in the background. Like, there's just so much great comedy happening there. I love. Wow. They're identical. That's, that's like one of my favorite <laughs> Weasley twin lines. It's so funny. Well, I like the Fleur one. That, that don't look at me. I'm hideous. 
<laughs> is it weird how often Daniel Radcliffe has to strip down to his underwear in this movie? <laughs> he does a good job of like portraying other people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, um, speaking of that, I don't know any 17 year old who has that much chest hair. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever we watch this with a friend, like, uh, the guy I was watching it with is like, look at his shoulders. You think that kid's 17? No. <laughs> shoulders? That's the, that's the takeaway here? I mean, his whole body structure is like, this kid's 21. I guess, you yeah. know, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, but very fun sequence. I'm not a huge fan of the following chase. Um, I do find, I, I like Yates' action in general. This one feels just a bit chaotic and shaky and everything is very dark and he increased the shutter speed to give it kind of a jittery feel. Um, but it didn't really work for me. Like it's, it's fine. There's a couple good moments. Like I like having Hedwig die protecting Harry was a good, was a good change. Whereas as in the book, she just gets shot in her cage. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it it doesn't do much for me. It's like it's an action sequence. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is um, being in the air for most of it. There's like no reference from a lot that's going on. I think the better part of the sequence is when uh, the bike dips down into traffic and stuff. Which you know you have questions of you know how many muggles just saw a motorcycle fly in and stuff like that. But as far as like my engagement with the scene, you know, at least there, there's like reference for what's going on. And, you know, when you're, when you're up in the clouds and it's just like billy smoky death eaters flying around and, you know, spells are flying, but they're unlike the diner sequence, they're not hitting anything. So it's like, it's just hard to be that invested in it. Cause it's so weightless. I think Yeah, CGI flying sequences are notoriously difficult to, you know, to make yeah. good. The, <laughs> there, there are certain elements that I'm not as big of a fan of because I, what I like, and I, I think I've talked about this in previous episodes. Something that I like is that like the people themselves feel very human. Like you get cut by something you're cut. Like they're, the wand is your conduit to magic, but you are still forced, like you are still subjected to reality. And there are a few moments from like that. You're like, there are a couple of beats where you're like that, that thing right there. I would have cut that. Like I, I'm not a big fan of like Hagrid going upside down and like Harry running across the bus and stuff. I'm like, this is a full action movie. And this is like, I know he's been through stuff, but this is a 17 year old kid. So it's like holding onto the bars, going upside down, run across the bus. And now we're back on. I'm like, Harry Potter isn't Tom Cruise. Like we're not doing, shouldn't be doing like these kinds of stunts. It just, it feels a little bit, we're, we're involving ourselves in kind of like action movie kind of thing, as opposed to like, we're wizards, you know, we, we use magic. Um, a moment that I do really like though, I think part of that is insecurity of the fact that there, we're about to spend a lot of time with almost no action. <laughs> that very well could be it. Um, <laughs> but I will highlight a moment that I do like. I really like when Voldemort shows up and like Harry is like borderline unconscious, just pointing his wand and like they pull out all the like it, it, it's the, the sound design is very, very weird. Very, It's like the whole that whole portion feels very surreal. Uh, in a way that I think is really cool. I like the aftermath of it better. Yeah. Um, like a Lupin's kind of wild-eyed paranoia as he's running around challenging everyone. Um, like the, you definitely get the sense like just 
they were they were not expecting this. Even the order is so far out of their depth and very much on the losing side of this war, and they know it. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, yet another thing like the Grindylo scene wasn't in the movies, <laughs> so like, <laughs> so for the count for the count of things that are introduced in this film, but. <laughs> But I, I love I love the delivery of it so much that I do not care uh, that that's a that that's a problem because like yeah you can see he's really shaken by this whole thing and that's just it's good good little aftermath scene. I really really love the twins more and more with each movie is with one movie being the exception. But like the the delivery of like that the whole world of ear related humor it's just his it's it's so funny to me. Pathetic. Yeah, I, I I love that it's a bad joke that gets the critique it deserves. <laughs> like if it had if he had just done the holy thing and it had stayed that, I'd have been like, ooh. The fact that they call attention to it, it's like, hey man, that's a stretch, you know. Like <laughs> I like yeah. that. And it's a, it's a nice mo like a nice tender moment with the two because they've never really been involved with any of the danger. They haven't really been involved in a lot of action. They're, they've almost always been comedic. Like, they, they've never really done anything that isn't just straight comedy. And this is still comedy, but it's also just a really nice moment where you never at all would you have ever questioned, like, their love for each other. Um, they're too inseparable to not love each other. But in this, just, like, whenever he's down there and he's, you know, he's calling him Georgie and stuff, it's just, like, it's, oh, man, this... This really is like these are brothers. He's he's looking at his, at like his wounded brother, and I don't know. You you really feel it's that extra dimension to their relationship that we really haven't gotten so far. And speaking of actors who look like they're thirty, um, what I don't know what it is. Why is this, this <laughs> one last film like everyone is very definitely a you know an aged adult. I thought the same uh, thing. He, Rupert Grint is yeah. like, like, dude, you've been out of college for like a decade, my guy. <laughs> That we, I, I talked a bit about kind of the, the transition from the wizarding world into the muggle world, but then you know, cutting back to the ministry uh, with a pious thickness, you know, you have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide as someone's getting hauled away by the, you know, the Nazi guys and Nazi, I think literally have like Nazi uniforms on. Like this movie is not subtle at all. Um, no. oh, that umbridge, umbridge's little giggle after no. that. The, the pamphlets too are like straight up like mm -hmm. Nazi propaganda pamphlets. It's like, they, they leaned into that. I think it. I think it serves the movie overall. Yeah. Uh, the whole the whole ministry stuff is just eerie and creepy and a lot, lot of unsettling. Simple for simple visual storytelling. That otherwise we have a lot of exposition, and this film kind of gets around a lot of it by just showing very evocative imagery. Yeah. Speaking of imagery, something that I really love is. Uh, the way Umbridge keeps the Dementors at bay, like, we don't talk mm. about what she's doing there, but we know what's going on. Like, I really like that there wasn't any dialogue addressing that. Like, we just, we see her little uh, Patronus playing with these feathery things that are floating up, and then you see them going into the barrier, keeping them, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, so the second she does, like, she stops that, you got the Dementors loose. She's putting these pe poor people on trial underneath. Like, it's, without really any dialogue, we, just, we know the severity of this room. This is her happy place. Yeah. The, that, Ryan, is so horrifying. Like, she's a, she's producing so much glee and happiness 
by tormenting innocent people yeah. that she's fueling a patronus that's keeping a hundred dementors at bay yeah like that's the first i think and only instance we see a well no there's a notable exception this is the first instance of a death eater patronus being present and the fact that like even that is a corrupted horrifying she's not even a death eater she's just yeah, some true, true. pompous self-righteous bureaucrat who yes. likes torturing people but her sense of joy is from that <laughs> but I, I i wanted to uh, i'll get back to the fun stuff of that heist but since we're on the topic of you know the minute the rise of the ministry that scene where she's um you know trying questioning uh mary Cattermole. i don't know why both in the book and film it gets my blood boiling like nothing else I'm just like, you know, from which, which, from which, which, which wizard did you take this wand? And you're like, as a child, you know, wands only choose witches and you are not a witch. And the thing is like, everyone knows that she got it from yeah. Ollivanders. Everyone knows she is a witch, but the party line says only pure or half bloods can, you know, are witches or witches and can get wands. So therefore, since the party has declared this to be truth. Despite the fact that we all know you got it at all of Anders, you must have stolen it. And it reminds me of a line, a, tr a quote attributed to uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn about how this, how uh, you know, Soviet communist Russia would, how the government would lie to the people. It's you know, we know they are lying. They know they are lying. We, they know we know they are lying. We know that they know that we know that they are lying, and yet they continue to lie. It's, a, it's one of the most demoralizing tactics an authority figure can use, you know, also known as gaslighting. Um, we're just, you tell them the sky is, you know, the sky is purple and you can kill them if they disagree. And so everyone there has to say the sky is purple. And in doing so they become, they lose their integrity and they become liars. And you know, it's, it's, it's this cycle of sh oppression and shame and you're breaking their spirit by, by, Make by forcing an obvious, absurd, ridiculous lie that it, a child could disprove, but everyone now has to repeat it, and now it is truth, and it, 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 it's really it's so deeply vile and gross, um, and I love that she was able to bring that concept into this movie rather than just oh it's all just top it's, you know it's you you can have you know Nazi symbol you know, symbols and, and visuals but to actually get into some of the psychology of how these evil tyrannical governments control so many people I think is really really interesting yeah and and it it's a thematic tie back to order of the phoenix in the first place you know I must not tell lies thing is literally etched into Harry's hand mm -hmm. at this point and that's like a, one detail that you know, there's no way of really doing it in the movie, but I, I'll never forget it in the book. I think a chapter ends on the note where they see Umbridge in the newspaper after uh, Mundungus is like, oh, there she is, bleeding bow and all. And uh, he said, you know, that his hand started to tingle, which is like usually something you get with a scar, <laughs> you know, but it's like his association is bad enough. Yeah. His association with her is bad enough to where it's like, ooh, you are quasi-Voldemort. <laughs> you know, like, ugh. Yeah, just 
how infuriating it is to watch you know, good people get tormented by this gleeful bully who just, you know, has all the power in this scene and can just say and do whatever she wants. And there's, there is no recourse in this world. Uh, and that, that's been a reality for millions of people, tens of millions of people throughout history. Uh, it's, it's dark, man. It's really dark. And it permeates the ministry too. Cause we also get, um, Yaxley's whole, threatening ron with the the reigning in his office thing i love ron's whole little he tried an umbrella <laughs> apparently he actually doesn't one. appreciate good humor no. <laughs> but yeah it's um which is a good much needed levity in that entire circumstance but yeah and uh, the payoff you mentioned the payoff of your lying dolores and one mustn't tell lies like that's been coming for a long time. R- yep. Rowling is so good at you know giving you know huge payoffs, but little moments like this that are so freaking satisfying. Yeah. Did we lose James? By no, the I'm way? still here. He's just enthralled by our brilliant conversation. Um, so, so now we're going over to the, kind of the fun side of the ministry heist. I love this sequence so much, um, and there, there's so many little elements. But I think the greatest is that they're able to carry over. Radcliffe, Watson, and Grint's chemistry with these three new actors to where right from the off they become them and like there's 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 no there's no like there's no, you know there's no time that we have to devote to just you know getting over the weirdness of it. like no they each one fits that role so perfectly and the chemistry between the actors in particular is so freaking good particularly as Stephen Rogery as Ron like amazing amazing they they look like awkward teenagers <laughs> pretending to be adults yes. in adult bodies uh-huh. which is like i i can't even fathom the kind of acting you have to do to do that but even like the way like hermione stands it's <laughs> it's like girlish you know but in a woman's body you know it's like i don't know they managed to capture the essence of those actors so well using different people and it's not just the voice i mean the voice is a nice trick but every little movement they do because it's, it's is... so much of it is silent it's, it's yeah. nice <laughs> yeah exactly oh goodness i can't i can't praise them enough for doing such a good job of pretending to be teenagers pretending to be adults uh-huh. as adults and just little <laughs> awkward moments or like the, the toilet entrance bloody disgusting <laughs> my wife's all alone downstairs Ron you don't have a wife <laughs> yeah. after you know he, he you know, actually took him off to the office and Harry goes and starts around he gets back in the elevator <laughs> Ron comes squelching in <laughs> Ron it's me <laughs> like just yeah <laughs> forgot what you looked like <laughs> um and uh, just another great touch is just Peter Mullen as um, Yaxley. Like, like as, as like this very small, not even a secondary antagonist, like a fourth, or, you know, third or fourth year antagonist. He's only in this one sequence, but he radiates so much just menace, and he really rocks that braid. Um, and just 
it's just the final scene where the chase is happening and she just stalks out of the elevator the way he he's walking across the hall and just the way he throws he, you know, cast spells with that huge arm motion they feel like they they hurt even more because of his, yeah. his aggressive arm movements uh, it's it's a yeah. actor I, th- I think he's only in this scene and the opening scene but he has so much presence that he is legitimately terrifying as he's walking you know, very casually walking after them across the hall and shutting down the flu network at the same time. It's like, yeah, it's, I, I you know, like I think of, you, you mentioned that he's only in this sequence and the opening uh, evil corporate board meeting, uh, but it feels like he's in so much more of the film mm-hmm. <laughs> because of that presence. So yeah, yeah, that's James. You've been quiet a while. I just said something. <laughs> Yeah, two words. I was going to interrupt. So I... The thing is, I I really like this scene a lot. Um, but... <laughs> in in the, So in the book, to me, one thing that I do... One thing that I think works better in this scene... And again, I, I hate being the person who compares, like, well, in the book, blah, blah, blah. But the... It being this kind of fun, crazy, high-stakes kind of heist scene, it works, I think, better in that because we have, like, chapter after chapter of being like, this is crazy, right? Like, we're, is this something we should do? Like, if we're going to do this, we have to plan for, like, weeks and weeks and, like, notice their patterns. And, like, it. there's so much that, like, we've, it, it doesn't, it doesn't interrupt the pacing or no, it, it interrupts the pacing of the book in like a really notable way. We're like, we're very, very slow. And then boom, here's this crazy chapter. And in, in the movie, it, you know, we, we have this very fast paced beginning where we got all of this introduction. We've got this chase scene then they crash the wedding. Then we've got the, we've got the, the shootout in the cafe and then, like, right after the shootout in the cafe, they're like, well, or, oh, no, no, because then we when we go back to um, uh, the Black... Yeah. And, that, you know, we we get a couple scenes there, and then it's like, well, here we go again. And so, as much as I like the scene in isolation, I kind of wish that they were able to put me... Because it's, it's 2 hours and 26 minutes... And some of these have got isn't the longest one like two hours and forty, something like that. Two hours and twenty, this one. Or like I'm, th- the, I'm thinking of like whatever the longest is in the franchise. I kind of wish that. Oh, uh, got, uh, Chamber of Secrets is the longest at two forty something. Okay, <laughs> that is wild. <laughs> yeah, to it me. is. Weird. <laughs> uh, but I kind of Sorry, wish that they had maybe put just a few extra scenes that's just focused on like. This is it, like if we mess up here, like we are we are literally walking ourselves into the most dangerous place in the entire world right now for us. Like if anything goes wrong here, we're dead. It's it's not like uh, we're kind of we're exposing ourselves, but at least it's it's uh, it's only at, I th- at risk of somebody maybe coming along. It's like no, we're we're like hand delivering ourselves if any hitch goes wrong and we barely know the ministry's layout. Like it's, I don't know. You get such a sense of 
of the desperation. Like this is the worst idea in the entire world. And the fact that we have to do this just shows how desperate we are. And here it's like, I think the danger is pretty well established in the film, just because the ministry is such an unspeakably evil place. And also Peter Mullen with a braid is stalking around, (laughs) threatening people. Very true. Well, it I doesn't. Think, it's not as if it doesn't it, work at all. I I really really like the scene. And I said like I like the scene in isolation, but in context, blah blah. Even in context, I, I definitely think it works. It's just I do kind of wish there was a little extra time taken to be like, like maybe somebody has the idea and we're like, no, like that's that's too much. And then you you if I may you let some character beats play out, and then you're like, okay, I guess we've got no choice. If I may bridge the gap a bit, because I I think. I side on Gabe and and I know you're not fully disagreeing with him that the danger is well established, not only because of Yaxley, but also because of Umbridge and also because of those creepy files in Umbridge's office. And, you know, so I, I think that aspect of it is actually pretty well established, but I do think there's an alternate version of this film where we do the heist movie trope starting out where somebody suggests it, and we have the, you're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to show you why this is stupid kind of scene. And then we can better appreciate like how they didn't anticipate that they would be split up on different floors or, or you know, so I think, I think that that could be done without actually taking a ton of screen time. Um, and honestly, I think we all believe, you know, you could shave off a minute or so of that uh, seven Potter sequence and, squeeze in a bit of high for I, I i think i for me that complaint kind of goes into my the film doesn't really find its stride until they begin the heist and i think part of that is because we literally don't have any planning like is literally you know umbridge has it bang cut we're into the heist like there is there are none of the you know the, the um the the heist film tropes of planning and you know sh- having them you know talk over like the, as they lay out the plan we see them doing it. like there's none of that we're just in it um so i do agree that that is a w- kind of weird jarring transition i just love the heist a lot <laughs> oh i love the heist a lot I, I do too here's what they could I do, do too i think i think a little extra context could have helped but i think it not not helped the scene and like that i would leave the heist sequence alone like that the way everything plays out in the ministry i wouldn't touch for anything but I, I do think a little, even just a line of, you know, oh, we'd have to be mad to go there. Like, this is this is the, the worst idea. Like, yeah, even that could. Yeah, could. it feels like it's it's not like, well, this is the worst option. But after some thought, I got to. It's like, well, this is, of course, we're going to do this. Like, we just, we decide on it super quick. Also, somebody, when it, obviously it wasn't this movie. I've had an idea for what a heist movie should do. You should you you need to start off with one of those like this is how it's gonna go and like you do your classic like we're we're voiceovering like the things as we do it and you play out the heist like that and then you cut back and they start the heist and something wrong goes like immediately and so we never get to anything that they had planned and it's like this immediate like trying to adapt on the spot but just like have two scenes for every like single thing they were supposed to do you get your little your planned voiceover, like, and then we go blah, blah, blah. And then the scene starts and, like, something trips up, like, 
minute one of the plan and it's like a mad scramble to try to get so done. mission impossible but they all die 10 minutes earlier no, they don't have to, it's just like the it's everybody is immediately just like in a scramble to try to get it done and like it's right after showing us exactly how things should have played out it's mission impossible but when they start to repel into the building the rope snaps and everything goes to hell after that so that's <laughs> And then after that, they still accomplish the mission, but in no way resembling what they planned. Like not even the the opening moments, <laughs> just immediate. Oh, oh, this isn't working. And the, the final moments of it are so good. As they're trying to escape across the hall, and he goes into sl- slow motion. We get this the gorgeous visual of Harry casting a spell on all the pamphlets, and they're just swirling around. And why is that such and a cool actually, like, visual? Stalking through them. But the, 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 the editing from Mark Day as like the last 20 seconds, like the music is pounding and Ron's terrified face and Yaxley's after him and it kind of all goes into the apparition. And oh my gosh, the visual of the apparition is so cool. Just the, the weird morphing faces and spinning around and that, that final moment as the one strand is stretched out and snaps like a rubber band symbolizing, um you know, splinching. It's just Again, more just really brilliant visual storytelling. Splinting, another thing we haven't introduced. <laughs> Sorry, uh, just running the counter. The, the transition from like the the apparating to the trees is one of those weird like what it like it, you almost have to like think and you're like okay what just ha- what did I just see like what the the weird like it feels like we're moving in fast but then it's just like it's like the slow the trees retake their shape. That's such a cool little. I don't know, weird effect. Yeah, it's almost as jarring of a transition as like going from the other borough to downtown London. Like this is a, it's very much like that that stage of the story is over and it's the chaos of the ministry to the real stillness of the forest and also Ron's dying. That's happening too. Um that's a that's a really gruesome effect for a PG thirteen movie. Yeah. I I also um we were talking about things that are slightly lost in translation. Um, one consequence of the ministry heist that we just gloss over here is that Grimmauld Place is compromised. And that was a huge deal in the book because they spent a lot of time with Creature there because they had one Creature over and they had a place of safety and refuge. It was not a particularly happy place, but it was it was a place they could lay low. Yeah, we, we, we even jumped. There's like... Oh, like a mo- two months later, kind of time jump that happens while we're at Grimmauld Place. So it feels like even longer. Yeah, yeah. So it's like that. That, that is one consequence of the immediate cut to the Ministry Heist that that does get lost here. I don't think it's a big detriment to the movie or anything, but it's something that when I think of the book versus the movie, I go, "Oh yeah, we do just kind of gloss over the fact that they lost their home and now have to travel in a tent." Mm-hmm. Yeah, now we move into uh, what some people uh, you know deem Harry Potter and the interminable camping trip, uh, which I love. I think like Me too. yes, it is very long. It you know it does get tedious, and that's the point. You're with Harry and you know Ron and Hermione in this hopeless situation with no clue what you're doing, and you're starving and you're cold and you just want to go home, but you can't because someone's gonna kill you. And it's it's like yes, it's tedious. Good, you you know, the film did its job. Yeah, yeah, and the added element of the Horcrux 
wearing down on all of them and especially Ron and making him just insufferable. And now actually I'll say this, like there are so many times in this series where Ron is being insufferable and you have like no contact. You're just like, Ron's just being awful for no good reason. In this case, like he has every valid reason to be bothered by what they're doing. Like when he, when he says the part about like, yeah, that's just another thing we have to find. Like, I kind of feel that like, yeah, it does feel like a really, really crappy situation, you know? Yeah. Just the sound design of the Horcrux. Like there's like this little hateful little goblin kind of like cursing out the world from inside of it or something. Uh, it's, it's, it's always there. Um, and I, I just, the, the scene, the, the first scene where we noticed the Horcrux's effects where Harry's like, it, like the, the, I love the way the irritation kind of ramps up to where he, we can even get a moment of like all caps Harry with you. You're not doing enough. And I like that Hermione doesn't even respond. She's like, take it off. And like, we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's what's going on. It's a little, you're I like you the way they play that. Yeah. Yes. He just snickers, Harry. Harry snickers. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, but just there's so many good little scenes. Like uh, the scene where the the Snatchers walk right by Hermione. Uh, I love the movement there. And the muffled mm-hmm. kind of audio thing. That's so good. Yeah, just walking through the, the desolate countryside. You mentioned this, James, uh, as the you know, the names of the dead are read. Um, oh, that scene is so good. Yeah, really, really heightening the kind of war movie feel. Like everything's like you, we go through the trailer park. That's looks like it's been bombed out. Feel free to edit out a crude term, <laughs> but I think I think about it every time we have a scene like this, and I, I can't. I wish I could give proper credit, but somebody had mentioned it when talking about Lord of the Rings, which they call landscape porn, where it's just like mm-hmm. just treated to vistas, going, "Wow, that's cool!" Like you get that alongside really really grim implications of just reading names yeah th- this is really like a you know, a infomercial for the you know, the english and scottish countryside um, like the cliffside where's those weird the rocks with the weird patterns through them that harry and Hermione yeah. stay on uh there's so many really cool reminds me of the end of the the fellowship the the rocks they're mm. on but these hills will be yeah. swarming with orcs <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> yeah yeah, I, it, it is so weird where, like, you've got this weird juxtaposition of these compositions are gorgeous, but with some of these images, the second you think about it at all, you're like, oh, that well, that's really depressing. <laughs> like, just it's these gorgeous but barren landscapes, and, like, the these where people lived is just completely gone, and, you know, we're in these busted-up shacks and stuff, and... It's it's beautiful to look at, but the the images are haunting. And like looking at these kind of at this haunting imagery while hearing just, oh yeah, every every name you hear, that's a dead person. Like that corresponds to a person who's now dead. It's like that's and across that scene, the noise of the Horcrux is rising, to eventually that, it drowns everything out by the end. That is so cool. We're like we're kind of starting to intercut between the landscapes, which is like Ron looking increasingly. Like I mean, it's it's like the the tea kettle, like the the pitch rising, where you just yeah, the you you know what's going on. You there, there's so much going on in that scene. We're like, we're we're moving from all of these different locations. We haven't really accomplished anything, and it's not it's not really like the Lord of the Rings kind of 
mont like a traveling montage because but with those scenes happen it's like well we're going in circles we're, yeah it's more like that really like, those <laughs> scenes start off with like well we're off to xyz here it's like and it's majesty and adventure and yeah and here it's like we we're going like we're, we see that we're traveling a lot of distance but we know we we don't even really have a destination so we're moving just to move just so we're not at one spot too long uh, so you, you've got that. You're establishing the aimlessness of the mission right now. You're establishing the rising death toll. So it's like you don't even have free time to try to figure things out. Like every second wasted is another person dead. So you're, you're like the, the stakes are continuing to rise. And then with the Horcrux sound and the images of Ron, like just looking like he's at the end of his rope, whenever that, that whole sequence ends, you're like, Oof, we just... We just did a lot, didn't like movie. You just accomplished a whole lot in a really, really cool scene. Good on you. It puts us in the headspace of the characters, which is what a good movie is supposed to do. And that's why I can forgive the the tedium of it. That's why I can forgive the the frustration of it. Because un, now I understand like there are ways to communicate frustration that are so unbearable to watch. You know it's very easy to do that wrong but i don't think that's the case here the frustration the tedium the boredom the the wondering okay what are we going to do next is is baked into the cake and it's not bad to watch it's it's making this conflict between our heroes magnified not just in the characters but in the audience as well so i will go to bat for the interminable camping trip because it is good character drama. Yeah. So, honestly, like it's it's my favorite. I think the Deathly Hallows is actually my favorite book, and um, it was the one that I was like, it was the adaptation that I was most nervous about because I'm like, how do you? We spend so much time in this book campaign, like we're we're just hardly doing anything. It's like, how do you get that across? And I think they do a really admirable job of getting that across to you. Be like because film is like a different medium and a different language like the way you accomplish something in a book you can accomplish differently in a movie and so before you know i'm like we we've kind of had an initial like we've had a couple scenes in the woods in the tent we've got this traveling thing and then after ron leaves we're still just kind of in the thing like in the in the tents a lot like it ends up being i don't know how long how much is it like 40 minutes of the movie it feels like that sounds about right. Like it, it, I'm, I, I'd, I'd wager it's less. Um, I guess if depending on whether or not you count, you know, the, the Godric's Hollow sequence as part of that. I I do, even though it's very different. Yeah, I I guess I'd still count that just because it, like, I guess we have a purpose in, like, we have a purpose in that scene, but we're still kind of nomads, and we return to like being nomads right as this like as scene ends, and it's it's within that general sequence. Um, but all that to say, it's like you've got a two hour, 20 something minute movie. And this is a huge part of the book that you have to adapt here. And it's just it's crazy that within this short amount of time, you really feel like, man, I feel like I've been camping for like two months. This is <laughs> I feel like I'm in the thick of it. Yeah, there's there's a real kind of one step forward, two steps back feel to this entire film where everything they do you know getting harry out of private drive oh we lost matt i fred loses his ear um you know we we, we got the uh 
the Horcrux from the Ministry, and we lost Grimwald Place, and Ron's injured. Oh, we find out about the sword. Oh, Ron leaves. We have a lead with Godric's Hollow. It's a disaster. Harry loses his wand. Like every, it's just like every time we have any hope or any step forward, there's just another setback. It's, it really makes any kind of progress feel really satisfying and earned because like it's a really hard road to get anywhere with this movie. Um, and, th- and there's consequence to everything mm-hmm. and a cost to everything. Even even tying into the list of names, of course, but I mean, in the space of this movie, Mad Eye, Hedwig, Dobby later on, losing Grimald Place, temporarily losing Ron. Tonk's, you know, Tonk's like, father that we never met. Mm, yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> At least they didn't introduce <laughs> him just to kill him and do that. Oh, it's my father, no! <laughs> introduce him as dead gosh that would be awful <laughs> um and, and that brings us to the scene where ron leaves um and rupert grit i i he is really really good uh, i don't think he gets enough credit as an actor um i think pro- i think radcliffe's probably the, the best i think because i think he, he has like a, a real movie star charisma about him as well as being a really good actor but i think grit is I think he's a lot better. I think he's better than Emma Watson. Um, even though Emma Watson is very good for the most part in this film, but he's so good at being petty and nasty. Um, and go watch a servant on Apple TV plus. It's the, uh, the M night Shyamalan show. Uh, like if you need more, if you want, if you want to see Rupert Grant being very petty and nasty and very funny, go watch that. Um, but just, he's so good at that and, and just being kind of just gross and hateable in this sequence. But I like that. It, it's very much rooted in character. Like it's like, he, it's all his kind of inferiority complex that we've seen crop up here and there throughout the series, but it's also things that he in normal life keeps a handle on. Like these are, this is a character flaw, but he knows it's wrong and he doesn't act on it. And, you know, he keeps it down. You just see a little comment or a remark here and there throughout the series. But the, you know, it's being it's the Horcrux, you know, playing it up. His, I like that it, it takes it it attacks their natural flaws. Where Harry just gets kind of impatient and frustrated. For Ron, it's his resentments and you know feelings of inferiority and just looking at what you know and all these kind of fears about himself. And it, again, I just, I just love that the conflict. It's not something that just comes out of nowhere. It all just feels like yes, this is who Ron is, just amplified. Um, all the you know in, in negative ways. And I just, I think the argument is really well written. Like Hermione knows it's the Horcrux, so she doesn't even try to fight. She just tries to take, you know, to, to mediate. Harry is like, is, I think Ron is speaking to all of Harry's own fears. Like the things he's saying aren't entirely untrue. And these are worries that Harry has had himself. So he, instead of, you know, blaming on the Horcrux, he goes and fights back and starts attacking Ron. Like, like even as the fight is happening each character is acting in character um and and it's just very well written very well performed and so freaking heartbreaking yeah yeah and i think go ahead i was just gonna say um you really you get all of that kind of like all of all of the annoying that like that the nastiness that you're talking about but the kind that's rooted in character even from the beginning of that like whenever he takes the lights out and he's just like yeah i'm still here by the way and the lady's like oh, 
you you this this whole idea of like what what does ron do you know like what how often does he help like you, i mean in the books it's more of an idea but it's even like you said it's even still present in the movie and so for the horcrux to just like let loose this insecurity that has been slowly building over the series but kept in check but is constantly kind of compounded now just out there like yeah harry's the chosen one hermione is the smartest person in the world like it okay I get it. Y'all are great. Y'all are the two best ever. Like, y'all are meant for each other. It, I, this movie is able to, like... It, it doesn't go, like, love triangle, but it does... Like, it introduces that idea of, like, oh, so so you like him. Cool. Kind of like the second-to-last movie in the series, the last, like, story proper of the series, it's introduced there, and you're like, yeah, I kind of believe why that would be what he would... What, like, that would be what comes out of his insecurity that he'd be like everybody like whether it's Hagrid or um, Slughorn like when you talk about Hermione everybody's like oh yeah she's the greatest witch ever like Hogwarts is going to remember Hermione and Harry is literally the chosen one and so for for Ron to feel threatened by like what they could be together it even though it's like it's boom this is a thing that he's now worried about it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere. It feels like what Ron on a Horcrux would do. Yeah, I, I think part of what works for me here too is in past instances of Ron insecurity flare-ups, like in Goblet of Fire, like it's just 100% unreasonable. You know, like the, the guy is worried that Harry is trying to steal all the glory out from underneath him. And you're just like, dude, somebody's trying to kill him. <laughs> you know, and and like the thing about this one is, yes, there's that that insecurity about Harry and Hermione and his inferiority complex. But at the same time, like when you're hearing those lists and names and you're they, they really are no no closer to actually destroying a horcrux or any closer to getting the sword of gryffindor you can see where somebody would naturally feel that way like guys what are we doing here and so like even though there are plenty of instances in the past of ron's insecurities and his fears and his worries and his just being kind of a jerk showing up i think this is actually weirdly enough probably the most justified instance and it's magnified by a horcrux also props to this argument for like being able to give the get the whole like you don't know what it's like you don't have a family and then like oh he went there like to be able to do that and be like you kind of stuck the landing because i I feel like a lot of the times those scenes are like i don't they just feel contrived but here i'm like oh good job but speaking as to what does Ron do, I love that scene. We we've, we've skipped over it earlier where he talks Harry down from leaving on his own, um, because what does he do? He's a really good friend. You, you, you Harry is Harry. There are moments where Harry definitely does buy into his savior complex, and you need that guy more steady guy next to him. Like you, know, you think Mad Eye died for you? This is a whole lot bigger than that. Like he's like he has some really good lives there. <laughs> Leave Hermione. Are you mad? I can't have you all risk your lives for me. (laughs) Yeah, like we've never done that before. Yeah, he he gets some really good moments. And then after that, like for the rest of the film, after he comes back, 
you can tell he feels like he grew quite a bit from that and he's much more decisive and very often one of the people lead you know leading the action rather than just kind of the you know the tag along it's funny because like it's it's a problem in other movies like the movies rob ron of a lot of exposition that they give to hermione because in the books you have a lot of ron explaining wizard culture to harry and hermione uh like uh, the whole balancing out hermione's kind of uh what's the what's the term uh book smarts Book smarts. Well, no, no, I was yeah. thinking like her, like her, her self righteousness and kind of like that's barbaric and all that. Right, like the, the whole mud blood sequence in um, Chamber of Secrets is given to Hermione, but in the book it's Ron that's explained. Dude, that was really offensive, you know, and it makes sense for him to know that, you know. So it it's kind of a problem in other movies, but in this one, it actually s- serves the character a little more since that he's had even less to contribute over all this time. Um, that leads us into the sequence of very sad camping, um, where it's just Harry and Hermione, uh, and it's, it gets even more miserable. And, and speaking of Emma Watson, she's, she's kind of continuing with the actors. I, it's yeah. funny. There are several different things that I wrote down in the beginning of the mo- movie as complaints that later became positives. One of them was uh, a lack, the, the general lack of music. It made some of the scenes at the beginning feel kind of weird, but then as it went, it became really effective. Another one was I am watching as Hermione. Um, I don't. I think she's very much the least of the three for like the first twenty minutes, but once like things start happening, action happens, and she her performance gets very frustrated, and there's a lot of sadness, and kind of, once like that aspect comes i think she's really excellent but there's a there's a bit where i think just the more normal scenes i think uh grint and radcliffe are are a good bit better than her she does there are moments where she doesn't feels like she she if you watch it it looks like she doesn't quite know what to do in certain scenes um and like if you look at their performances i think the two are definitely the stronger actors than her if you look at their you know their non-harry potter performances um but however it was funny. I wrote that down in the first twenty minutes, and then later on, I was like, "Wait, she's really good in this scene. She's really good in this scene. Hey, she's really good in all the all these scenes." You know, past the twenty minute mark. Um, yeah, just we're, just these silent moments, like where they, the first the, the first apparition after Ron's oh, left, yeah. and she just breaks down, and Harry has to go and do all the protective charms. That is a realistic cry face, like a, that. That really does look like heartbreak. Like man. You you end up feeling so sad for like the next ten minutes. Yeah, it's a redemption <laughs> for Goblet of Fire. Just she makes re- re- reading a book curled up in a blanket look so sad and miserable. <laughs> well, even even the way they walk through Godric's Hollow, you just you don't get the feeling like oh these are two good buddies. Yeah, you, know, you get they're like mourning. You know, like yeah, I love how the melancholy of the previous sequences bleeds over into that. Um, but I always talk about the dance scene. It's kind of a controversial mm-hmm. thing. I I wonder how much of the Harry should have been with Hermione kind of th- narrative is almost entirely based on the f- uh, on Radcliffe and Watson's chemistry together, and the fact that Radcliffe and Bonnie Wright have you know <laughs> zero or negative chemistry. <laughs> I I wonder how much of that is entirely just on the movies rather than actual stories. Like, they're 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 really really good together, and I, I love that dance scene where it's like, 
this film has been such a miserable slog and they're able to just find this like just like it's almost like they're stealing this little bit of happiness it, it, it's like it doesn't even belong in this story but they're, they're, they're grasping for this little bit of happiness and then it ends and Hermione's sad again and then your life goes on but it's just such a wonderful little I think very subtle moment of just kind of some people see it as romance I see it as just a you know, really good friendship um, but yeah they're, they're great together I think also part of it is, you know, I mentioned like the whole camping thing is getting into the headspace of the characters. And I think that this whole dance sequence, if you interpret it as a uh, Harry Hermione shipping thing, can also, again, reacquaint you to the headspace of Ron's insecurities. So even the subtext that's going on with the scene works for me. But I, I... on a pure level, like watching that scene, like when I saw it in theaters, I thought, okay, this is un-Harry Potter-ish and I still like it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was my takeaway. It was like, it did in a way feel out of place, but not entirely in a way that I disliked. Yeah. I, so I really, really loved the scene a lot. Uh, and it was, so the, I do remember the scene the first time I watched it where, like, I was really start. I was so into this movie. I loved the cafe fight. I loved the heist. I loved the montage. I'm like, okay, this is winning me over. And then that scene happens, and I'm like, oh, this movie. This, this movie, like, David Yates, you are, like, a director. You are a storyteller. You are in control of tone. And, like, it's just, you're doing so many things right. And so to, to just to have this, to let us be so miserable for so long and then to be like, and then a song comes on the radio and he sees her and she is absolutely depressed. And so he just dances with her for a bit. I'm like, oh my God, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and I maybe it's because I've read the book and I'm like, okay, I know they don't go, like there's not any sort of Harry, Hermione, like love thing going on. So I'm like, I was kind of geared to know that that's not where it goes. Maybe that informed it. But I, it, to me, it definitely felt entirely platonical. Like, He's not, he's not trying to like, wow, like look at his dance moves. He's being a goofball. Like he's trying to just make her laugh. He's trying to give her some little moment of, hey, we're not dead right now. <laughs> so let's, let's celebrate that. Let's have any small amount of enjoyment in, in this. And so, yeah, he's like, just the way he's dancing, the way he's goofing around. It, it's such a, a sweet moment. And I, I commented before, um, of like really or in uh in order of the phoenix talking about how like i or not order of the phoenix sorry um in the half-lit prince like really liking that they're really building this specific harry hermione friendship like now that ron and hermione as a couple is like is so it's no longer subtextual like it is the text now like we we all know it's it's involved itself in the story it changes Harry and Hermione's dynamics. So now like, okay, if if he's going to be the love interest, that kind of by default makes Harry her best friend. And and I I just saw this scene as a continuation of that. It's just like this small, really beautiful, really tender moment of, of the two having some small amount of, of fun and playfulness and then immediately falling back into depression as soon as the moment is like stolen away from them. Uh, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, let me clarify. I didn't, I didn't think it was a 
Harry, Hermione shipping scene. I was just saying, if even if you think of it that way, it still benefits the film. Um, but yeah, I, I actually agree with your interpretation of how it feels to me. Um, and I also, again, to, to punt back to Goblet of Fire, this is a much better example of diegetic music in Harry Potter. <laughs> Are you telling me you don't like the Weird Sisters? Oh, gosh. Oh, I despise the weird sisters i can go on record to say and 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 if 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 you like the weird sisters and dislike this scene i have questions (laughs) questions and judgment Um, (laughs) that that brings us into godric's hollow and i love just the melancholy that carries into this it's like oh christmas eve i didn't know we did that anymore um but just the quiet, the snow as they're going through the graveyard. And the hymns in the seeing, background, like the Christmas carols. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. seeing his parents' grave and just really beautiful, understated acting from Daniel Radcliffe. Just the Merry Christmas, Hermione. Oh. Um, it's like, just the, if I like if I ever had to like find a scene that like, you know, bitter, you know, to describe the word bittersweet, I'd stick this one up there. Um, and then a really, really creepy old lady walks in. God, that is great horror. I'm just saying. Uh, there, there are several shots where like they turn around and she's like standing right there with like her, the light, you know, uh, underlit yeah. face. I don't want to like badmouth the woman, but she's she's terrifying. <laughs> um, uh, and the, well, I'm sure under normal lighting circumstances and not prosthetic to be a corpse snake thing, she's probably fine. So, <laughs> but yeah, she is she, like she's her, her perf- physical performance is so could just the way that scene builds again and like the first half of the scene has very little music and it's really peaceful and serene the second half has very little music and it's horrifying um i think the the little buzzing of a fly you hear every now and then yes why is that so off-putting it's so creepy to me that whole scene is just and the way she talks parcel she speaks parcel mouth uh to harry and he responds there's no subtitles it's not called out and you're like wait did, did that just happen what like just the whole building on he's like i'd love to see yates do a horror film because this <laughs> ain't right yeah yeah well and she says it so like you believe that hermione could just be like not properly hearing well, i think or... they're, the, they're up they're upstairs she's downstairs when it happens i believe that's right that's right yeah but even even then, like it's just like it's so. This is the thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the the presentation. I'm with you, Gabe. Like I want to see what he can do with a horror film because this is a horror scene, and it 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 play it uh, speaks well of the scene that even when you know what's going on, there's still a lot of dramatic tension. Yeah, really good cross-cutting between Hermione, you know, looking around and trying to figure out what's going on. And... Yeah, and the snake is a giant nope. Just nope. The the transit, like the, the, the weird face, like borderline Indiana Jones effect going on there, <laughs> I'm like, oh, like especially, like it's it's got that really harsh, lit entirely by a nearby fire. So it's got that really... That, that bright orange that's just accentuating the wrinkles and moles in all the wrong kinds of ways. And it's just everything is bubbling up. You're like, oh, stop. Why are we so close to this face? Get, get me away. 
It's it's a yeah, very I, I can very take the lady effect. and I can take the snake. I can't take the lady snake. That's just <laughs> it's, it's that transition <laughs> that between the two. I'm like, oh my god, this is we've we've gone right into full horror right now. And then they have the fight with like the the strangely lit crib, which I also area. love. Like, like it's so surreal. It's like, ugh. Yeah. God, yeah. Gosh, it's so good. And then we're back to campy and peaceful forces. <laughs> Thought y'all got some action, did you? Nope. <laughs> uh, and then we've, you know, we've lost the wand. It's just Harry's delivery of, where's my wand, Hermione? And again, another great mo- moment from Emma Watson. Um, and you're right. I think you're right where we're kind of at the limit. Like, we, we can't camp anymore. We get the, you know, the dough in the pond. Um, and again, I love the lack of music as he's just following the dough through the, you know, the, the snowy forest. Um, uh, and Ron comes back, and that's awesome. <laughs> I love the first lines. You go, are you mental? <laughs> I love Ron so much when he gets back. Like from then on in this movie, he's just he's just the best. That and uh, Harry's little like uh, when he's like, uh, she's still mad at me, and he's like, you just keep <laughs> talking about little balls of light. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 but when they before they destroy the Horcrux, he's like, I can't, Harry. That thing affects me more than you. And Harry's like, Then why are you here? Like, it's just a really good chat, like kind of character challenge. And you know, he squares his shoulders and he does it because he's awesome and he's Ron. Um, and goes on awesome. to do the really... same thing to Hermione in Deathly Hallows Part Two, like mm. with the yeah, Chamber of Secrets yeah. and the um, what was it, the Goblet at that point. The uh, Hufflepuff, 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 yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't do words right now. Um, <laughs> uh, but just uh, the interactions between Ron and Hermione, where like she just runs at him and starts throwing leaves at him. Where's my wand, Harry? <laughs> he just skips backwards. Why do you have his wand? Never mind why he has my wand. <laughs> they argue uh, like a real couple. It's it's great. Also, but before that, I I really like the effect of the locket. It's not an effect I'd expect to like because it's like, oh, big smoke thing. Like, it's just it's a swirling CGI noise. I feel like it's, it's primed to be something that would be like, ah, the book did it in a more subtle way. And you felt you had to be like, blah, big monster. But for some reason, I think this might be even more subtle in the book. The book's pretty wild in that scene. <laughs> OK, that, OK, that is also true. Yeah, it, it goes pretty crazy. But in the, like, there's, I think it's just like the weird distorted faces. Uh, also, it, the li- there's a liquid feeling. Yeah, to like the, it, uh, it's not smokies. just smoke. It's like this weird... Um, it's kind of like the, the weird smoky Death Eater effect, but just like mm. sustained and swirling around. And it's like, it's really, really creepy, I think. And then... Yeah, it's, it's an effect Yates uses later for the obscurises. I, I really, really like it. It's, it's I don't know, like uh, the Venom, like the Venom gooey symbiote yeah, yeah. kind of feel. That and I, all of that stuff I love. Like when it looks good, it's good. Yeah, is a good the, there's a big that wide angle that just shows the whole thing from top to bottom. Like whenever Ron is lying down, you've got just this kind of portrait or this landscape shot. I'm like that thing, it's just in scope. That thing just looks cool, and then. I just end up really rooting for Ron so hardcore in that scene because it's like he's been through so much and after all that he's like no I'm I'm coming back like he comes back and saves the day and he's just greeted to the most 
direct to the point, direct to the heart kind of insult and attack on integrity and attack on character. And I'm like, he just came back for his friends. Don't hurt him. (laughs) Stop, stop trying to stop being so mean to Ron. And so like whenever he just, I I love the idea that, you know, like they, it's, it's being especially mean. And it's like, here's Harry and Hermione naked making out. And he's like, for him to just like run directly through that image of them, like, and not even, not like it's like it's like it's not even there for him when he just runs direct breaks through that kind of apparition of them and brings the sword down i'm like yeah we we are ron fans here we this is this is such a great moment my my only critique of this and it applies to both book and movie is like if i'm a evil part of voldemort's soul trying to stay alive that is like the like bullying my subject into wanting to destroy me is not the tactic <laughs> yeah, I would take. I kind of the same <laughs> Another lovely Rod moment. You say like, all in favor of going to hear Xenophilius Lovegood. He raises his hand and bo- just the looks that both uh, Harry and Hermione give him. I, th- there's another, there's a moment where I'm like, Emma, I really do like Emma Watson as an actress in this where she walks away, but it's not like, like she's finding a smile as she walks away. Like <laughs> she she loves Ron and she thinks like she's really taken by that moment. And you can see it on her face as she walks away where she's like she's trying not to turn around and just like like let her know or let him know that she's like she still cares about him. It's, yeah, these three actors are just gold together, no matter what they're doing. That I think is the strength of the whole interminable camping, is that it is just yeah. real tight character drama. Then we go to Xenophilius Lovegood's and we get the tale of the, of the three brothers. It's really, really cool animation style. Like I'm getting like a touch of maybe stop motion, bit of Guillermo del Toro, a bit of Coraline. J. Bay really, some monster call stuff going on. That yes. too. Um, yeah, just a really unique creative style. Uh, the touch that gets me the most is the way death reels in the yes, second yeah. brother by the, I was the noose like a puppet. Uh, like that's the moment where like, oh my gosh, I just throw the Oscars at it. It's amazing. And, and the embrace at the end with the wings. I like that too. Mm-hmm. But uh, just his design, like the, the, that weird hunched over look and this, it's all very skeletal. And, uh, yeah. and by the end of it, when it cuts back to you know, Reese Yvonne's, I'm like, oh yeah. We're watching a Harry Potter movie. I, I was so absorbed. I completely forgot. It is so That's... eminently watchable by itself, too. I have I have pulled this clip up on YouTube and just watched it independently probably a dozen times. Emma Watson's narration is fantastic. Um, I lo- And, of course, the little uh, Ron and Hermione moment in the beginning. It was like, midnight. <laughs> My mom always said. Better even. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, good. The looks they all give after they take a sip of tea. Like each one has a different reaction. Yeah. Hermione is like doing the like this whole her face in the background is like hilarious to me. Uh but like this scene is just another reason of like why I I really, really love this movie is because of how different it is. Like the dance scene feels so weird. Whenever in Hogwarts, that feels off. These feel like shootouts more than magic battles. And then like We've got this weird, trippy, animated scene that comes out of nowhere. Like, 
it's what but something that i really love about it is like the transition in and out of it like the leaf hitting the water and then the like the ripples in the water being our segue into the animation and then going from like the swirling like the the crows flying in circles transitioning into the reflection of the crows flying outside of love goods home i'm like oh wait this is some good stuff man not to mention i mean of course they have the benefit of it being rowling writing it but gosh it's just beautifully written beautifully yeah. narrated beautifully animated i mean and i think it's so important that the the introduction of the deathly hallows be so distinctive and so memorable because there's always a new element being introduced that's going to be very you know vital to the plot in the second one right um, and they made sure you remembered that yeah yeah the they really like the symbol becomes like oh i i know what that is now i also think the sequence is helped by having like literally two of like the best two of some of the best establishing shots in the movie like the the one that gabe has as his background right now yeah. <laughs> um in our zoom call is gorgeous and then the one that the is, profile, James. Which, which, which is the uh the trio looking oh, yeah, over across the field <laughs> At Xenophilius's house in the distance. A very such a sparse like uh, composition, but it's like, man, that is incredible. And then the other one is like it's the side profile, like they're at the doorstep, and the right side of the screen is entirely empty, and the left is just like this really pretty image of the, of the house taking up the the vertical left piece. And I'm like, ooh, man, I'm ready for the like whatever this scene is. It is. It's it's been preceded by some of the most pretty images ever. Wizard houses are strange places. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Between the burrow, this and Malfoy Manor, they're needlessly vertical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and even more just silent, af, you know, silent, uh, silently affirming the, the 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 oppression of the um of Voldemort. Just the, this guy who used to be an ally has now turned on us. Oh, and an. We, we talked in Order of the Phoenix episode about kind of there's some moments where they add an element from the book and really call it out. Other moments where they add it in kind of silently. And if you know, you know. And I love the use of use of Voldemort's name you know, to call him the Death Eaters. It's never called out in this film, but it happens when they're in the cafe. Hermione says his name. And a couple seconds later, the Death Eaters walk in. And same here, you know, where, where, where Xenophilius says um, his name and then instantly the Death Eaters are, are, are upon them. And they, they, so this goes into the um, the forest chase scene, and for some reason, for the longest time, I've always thought that he ripped this off from Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Shadows, that amazing forest chase. But this happened a year earlier, so I'm I'm assuming Guy Ritchie ripped it off. You know, they're both Warner Brothers productions, and also weirdly, they the films kind of have a similar, very gray visual aesthetic. And to to, to kind of take this even further, Yates hired uh, Philippe Rousselot who was the cinematographer for the two Sherlock Holmes films to shoot the first two Fantastic Gabe, Beasts films. Gabe, may I? I'm so sorry. May I just go back to point out the Xenophilia's love good is so good in that scene too. Like the, yes. the way he's acting like really distracted and like makes the tea with no water and like the, the way he's like sporadically you know, jumping around, constantly checking the tea, even though like he, he sees clearly not focused on it. And the, when he gets mad, when they suggest that they're going to leave too, it's just like, 
the the guy has such a small role in this scene, but man, he's doing a good job of it. I buy that this is a desperate father beaten down. I've liked Reese Fons in pretty much everything I've seen him in. Like I, I even like his lizard in uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people do forget that movie, but uh, I enjoy it. Um, uh, something about him that I really like as well. I feel like uh, he and he's like a good point of comparison, like this kind of counterpoint to Lucius Malfoy, where like they're even sim- kind of similar in design uh-huh. of like this kind of very dignified, uh, dignified, like they just, they both look, their faces look kind of similar. And like, you've got the long blonde hair but they're both in this complete state of dishevelment. They're both very desperate, thinking almost entirely about like the, these children. And so, like on both sides of Voldemort, you've got these desperate fathers who are just like, you know, you know, we we've had a lot more time to see what Lucius looks like originally. But the movie does, it introduces Lovegood in the like in the opening and so you see like he's always weird and he's like super eccentric and bright colors and dre- yeah very very out there but he's still kind of like he's there's something that is still it's put together in his own kind of way and so to introduce him like that and for us to already know what Lucius looks like for bo- the movie to present both of these men as just like these broken shells of what we'd seen before I feel like there's something intentional about, like, I, I think this, the similarities and, and presentation. But going back to the, <laughs> the guy Richard comparison, <laughs> no, uh, those were, were definitely worth mentioning. Um, it's, it's just, it was just, this sequence feels very much like a Guy Ritchie sequence where it's, um, it gives flashes and sounds and images to kind of give you the impression of the sequence rather than showing everything. So we we get, like a fl- uh, you know, a shot of someone's face, you know, the the labored breath, the the snapping of twigs, a wide shot. Like it, it's giving just all these little moments and snapshots to kind of come together to build a sequence. It's not nearly as good as uh, Guy Ritchie's uh, actual you know rip off sequence in uh, Game of Shadows, which I think is like one just an all time great action sequence. But it's uh, pretty well done here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, apart from the fact that like you guys can. Your wizards, you don't have to run. You can teleport. But it's cool. Yeah, and it gives us a great poster too. So I'm not too mad at it. So yeah, that is a good poster. It is a good poster. I love this scene too, though. Like the the mechanical gripes aside, like it is a really good scene. And another instance of I can't remember if it's no music or just minimal. Um, but it's if there is music, it is not prominent at all. It's again sound design taking center stage and you know just seeing bits of wood breaking apart and you know lots of sounds of leaves and running and just good stuff yeah i i really like that sequence too then they're captured and brought to malfoy manor um and this is really really dark sequence captured by a british glam rocker no less (laughs) (laughs) oh I, i love his delivery of what happened to you ugly no, not you. <laughs> to, uh, it, did, it made me laugh this time. And Lucius is even more pathetic. And Tom Felton, really, really good. Um, it's like he he wants this, this ride to stop so he can get off. This is not where he wants to be. Yeah, I I don't... He's, he's not in it much. I think Jason Isaacs is phenomenal in this. 
the the little because of how like how prideful he is so often to to see him in this state and we talked about you know like the 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 makeup and the disheveled hair like there's there's external factors helping him but to 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 see him in this low estate and to hear like the changes like the subtle changes Isaac gives in delivery it's like oh we I you're telling me so much about your state just in like your vocal inflections and stuff and and the writing is you know like just how much he wants this like just do this do that the dark lord won't care this will all go away please just let this happen like you you start to really i think it really helps set up their moment of of just wanting out at the end of deathly hallows part two where you're like they they don't care anymore they're not dedicated to the cause they're just everything is not it, it's self-serving but not in like the typical like selfish greedy kind of stuff it's like they, they're just done with this. They want out. They're tired of what's going on. They're freaking terrified. And I think his performance really elicits like some real sympathy for him in just a short amount of time. Yeah, and I, I, I think, too, like we've seen Lucius sort of lose his cool before, um, like in cha- at the end of Chamber of Secrets and stuff. But something about the way he snaps when he's like, you dare talk to me like that in my house? Like, it's different. Like, it's just, He's so done with this. And I, I love that side of him. You know, the, the fact that he immediately snatches up the chance of redemption isn't like it kind of erases some of the sympathy, of course. Um, you know, you're under no illusions that Lucius Malfoy is going to be a great guy or anything. <laughs> but you do see that this world Voldemort is creating that is supposedly for the benefit of the purebloods is still not great (laughs) you know like even at the top of the ladder it's still terrifying and this is a man who's fallen from from grace in a way even though he has all the on paper credentials you know he's living a humiliated life i i I, i'm with you james i i think this might be his best performance in in the series um and it's it's fairly limited compared to some of the other like he has quite a bit of time in order of the phoenix and i thought he did pretty good there too um but man i i i do appreciate the malfoys a lot um and uh, dobby comes back and it's awesome because nothing bad happens to dobby uh, just and then they really make up for him not being present in all of the series like it, it definitely hurts like because he he has pretty significant subplots in you know Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, and Half-Blood Prince. I'm not sure about Half-Blood Prince. I think I think he's present there. But, like, he's had a huge presence throughout the series. And here, like, well, you haven't seen him at all for four full films. Um, just you, Of course, I'm an elf. Um, like, he's, he's just wonderful. <laughs> me. My favorite, my favorite line that's comedic. Is it going to be the, my favorite as well? It's a, uh, don't be never meant to kill. <laughs> Just maim or seriously injure. I was like, what? Just the shot of him quite, you know, hanging on the chandelier very slowly. It's so screen. funny. 
that image it should it almost shouldn't even work it should be in this but it cracks me up it's so funny he's about as skinny as a chandelier stealthy my my favorite line dobby is being stealthy my favorite line is just after he takes out wormtail is like who gets his wand that's a good one too and then he dies oh yeah um, but uh, the, the, the shot after they apparate into Shell Cottage okay, is just okay. a shot on the sand. Can I talk about a shot before uh, yeah. that that I'm not a fan of right. so that I can join you in right, just like the pure love? Uh, so it, this is kind of similar to my complaint with the way Sirius dies in um, Order of the Phoenix where like there, it's like it's the suddenness and the randomness that, that really shocks you to me. At, at least that's how I feel. And in the like in Order of the Phoenix, just the fact that he falls through and he's gone and there's no body there. It's just, I really like that. In this, I I wish we did not get the slow-mo shot. I really, and like the, the big blare and the music and the zoom in on Bellatrix's face. I kind of wish it was just shot like a regular operating scene and you may not even notice the dagger the first time and then rewatch it like, holy crap, she threw it. It's like the dagger never hits the wall on the other side. Like, a thing like that where it's like it it hit the smoke and it's a blink and you miss and for the people who read the book or the people who are like super just like looking out for things like oh the knife never actually hit the wall like on the other side and so you're not waiting and it's not stylized enough to to justify that slow-mo either yeah like it to me it feels like it's telling you like get ready someone's about to die and i feel like i don't know the Operating, thinking that like okay we got away and then that happening i think would have been like it's already heartbreak like when we talk about this i'll ooh, it gets me hardcore but um i do wish that the movie didn't tell you hey someone's about to get stuck with the knife just you were trying to figure out who i just i wish that it was like a boom and then you're like oh crap she actually got him but i, I the, the next shot where it's just this a shot of the sand and we hear them apparating. I love it. It's just like really great filmmaking creativity to where we know that sand, that sounds so well that we kind of convince ourselves in our mind that we saw the effect. Like it's a very expensive CGI effect. They got around doing by just having the sound. And, but the way, also the way the camera kind of almost drunkenly goes up and we see Harry kind of trying to get his bearings and just drifting around. He's running while um, it's like tilt, while the camera's tilted. It's a weird, it's kind yeah, of it's, disorienting. For for me, it's and, the shot of Dobby like clenching his, his Yeah, that wide. Like, oh, 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 man. First off, he's all alone. It's painful as crap, but it's also a beautiful shot. It's just yeah, like, I feel like that's like become the most famous shot of this. When you type in uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1 cinematography, this comes up immediately. And it's like, how how are you hurting me so bad with such a beautiful image? And that like, the body language of Dobby in that, like, he's already he's always been kind of like sad looking because he's like malnourished and stuff, you know. But like, oh man, it's like it's like seeing a kid die, you know. It's like you, you just don't want to see that image, you know. And his giant shoes. <laughs> yeah, so, so sad. Uh, the thing that like breaks my heart is whenever we do like just whenever friends are talking we're doing impressions when you do a dobby impression the thing you say is 
Harry Potter. You Harry Potter. Like it's just like we we're so used to hearing Dobby say Harry Potter. He says his name like eight thousand times just in his two appearances. He's always shouting Harry Potter or whatever. To hear like whenever Harry goes to Ron and Hermione, and you the delivery is like it just crushes your heart when you just hear Harry Potter, and I'm like, oh my. Gosh, I don't want this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be this scene. Uh, this should be a deleted scene. This <laughs> they should have cut it because they realized it's too much. And and, uh, her, and Harry Daniel Radcliffe's whole like help him looking at Hermione and Hermione's like that is whew, her shaking her head and fighting back tears herself. And if you didn't feel bad enough, Voldemort gets the Elder Wand and he's oh, victorious and stronger than ever. Right, go ahead. Sorry, because. This scene, I, I got emotional the first time, but for some reason, watching this movie by myself, like, I finished it today, like, when this was going on, I was like, whenever I realized I was going to cry, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just crying. And it was just, like, it was so upsetting to me, and the the image that just got me, it's for some reason almost more than bodies, it's like, it's wrapped up bodies that, it's, it's so sad to me. Whenever Hermione walks up, and she's holding just this little bitty, it's just like this little... This little tiny thing wrapped up in a blanket. Toddler size. Like, <laughs> yeah, like it's like my heart dropped just watching her walk up. And and it's like it's proportioned just the right way. Like it looks like she's holding so, like she's holding just some small little lifeless body. And it like it is so horrifically depressing to me. And then just the montage of them digging the grave. It's and it's something that I was wondering about whenever I read the book and hadn't seen the movie yet was it's, it's a big, like right. The, the eulogy, like the idea that here lies a free elf, uh, that means a lot, you know? And it's because like Dobby being free has been a very big deal in the books. Like his freedom is almost always relevant to whatever subplot he is involved in in the books and it's controversial among even elves yeah and and so like this has been this defining thing and so i'm like they've got it like if they're gonna bury him they've got to do that so how are they gonna how are they gonna make up for all of that lost time and i think they actually do it really well where you know he's back in the presence of his mat like of his old masters in their house you know and bellatrix is just being violent shouting at him like how dare you shout this in, in your master's house and blah 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 and i think in just a line, they really, in a, in a really smart way, make up for a lot of lost time. Where he's like, Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. And then, like, apparating after that, I'm like, oh, that this is, like, the, the last scene prior to his death is hit this proud declaration of his freedom. And I think that was a really smart way to make up for all of that lost time. It, it, it also hurts to think about, like, one thing that benefits from Dobby being absent from the movies is the last thing Harry said to him before this movie was, don't ever try to save me again. Oh. Oh. That hits. That hits hard. I'm about to cry thinking about it. <laughs> it's too much. It's just too much. Yeah. Uh, and in case you weren't feeling sad enough, uh, Voldemort gets the Elder Wand, you know, defiles Dumbledore's tomb, and he's victorious and stronger than ever, you know, Happy thoughts to end with. This ending is phenomenal. <laughs> it's a mood. <laughs> it's it's so moody and it's so freaking bold. It's like we buried Dobby. We're not even through, like we're literally seconds. Oh, like 
after burying him that we get this final like dialogueless scene and i'm like you you made that you're this big you made the decision to kill dobby I, i mean obviously dobby had to die but like to to be like okay and after he dies i'm cutting to him getting the wand and i'm hard cutting like oh what a choice i applaud you for it because that is fan the cut to black with the, the just the sound of the magic i'm like oh that is good stuff well and it's like the stakes are extremely well established here the cost of things is really well established here and he's not even at this most powerful you know like this isn't even my final form exactly exactly what i was gonna say this is like <laughs> Oh no. Oh no. You know, and we just we just had the tale of three brothers to explain to us how bad this is, you know. So ah, it's a great ending. It's it's like the beginning in that way. Like you can have things in the middle, but the, the way this movie starts and the way it ends, perfect. We we mentioned in um in Half-Blood Prince that Voldemort doesn't even show up in that film. And yeah, like the when he shows up here, it's like you, it's like he never left. Like his, because his presence is the driving force of everything that happens in Half Blood Prince. Like when he when he's here, you at the head of the table is like yes, obviously because the, <laughs> the world has gone to hell and it's all his fault. And uh, Ray Fiennes is again is very good at being weird and horrible and creepy. Just, <laughs> and just the absolute worst, really. You think if y'all don't have anything else you wanted to mention, uh, y'all ready to move on to, into talking about the uh, the score? Mm-hmm. Sir, did you listen to the score, James? I did not. Ah. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of it, so. <laughs> well, there, there's 29 freaking tracks. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, <laughs> but it took a while to listen to. I, I really only have to sing praises about one track in particular and it's obliviate like that is a fan it might be my favorite non-hedwig's theme instance of music in harry potter it is just crushing like i i love that track yeah the, the only the, not the only but the the most notable piece of music to me was was as dobby dies in harry's arm like that mm-hmm. whatever plays there just like breaks your heart even further <laughs> the images aren't enough we're not quite crushed yet they just play <laughs> this music yeah that one is farewell to dobby um yeah I, I, this one feels very much in line with uh, nicholas hooper's work the t- very tonally very similar i did notice there are quite a few moments where um Displa, i don't know how you pronounce it i think really Displa, uh goes full john williams like there are particularly in the sky battle it sounds like a, a john williams track out of star wars and th- there's one i think big kind of uh missed opportunity uh the, the godric's hollow graveyard i really wish they played uh window to the past uh there mm. but th- but the music they do play is lovely but I just i'm i'm continually disappointed by the lack of you know thematic cohesion through the series uh, pretty good. M- most of it's just very kind of somber, atmospheric stuff. Um, I got to mention Love Good James because there are there's some harpsichord in there, and I know you love mm, that. I'm always uh, down for some good harpsichord. 
Yeah, not, not, not all that much to, to, uh, in particular that I feel the need to mention. All right, so moving into our star rating and ranking for this series. Let's start with you, Ryan. What do you give this out of five stars, and how do you rate, rate the series so far? All right, I'm going to upset some of the viewers here. I'm giving it five stars. Like, ah. my complaints about this film, I share a lot of the same ones as you guys, but the highs so far outclass the lows. I don't care. The, this movie is in my opinion, uh, in contention, at least, for the best Harry Potter film. Prisoner of Azkaban is the only one that even comes close, and and I fully respect anybody that chooses that over this. So I'm not in any way going to fight anybody for choosing Prisoner of Azkaban over this. But for me, I, I do give it uh, Deathly Hallows, Prisoner of Azkaban, Half-Blood Prince, Chamber of Secrets, Order of the Phoenix, Sorcerer's Stone, and then Goblet of Fire is my ranking. And you, James? So I, I go four and a half. I I do think there, because I got, I was able to get like 20 minutes into the movie and still being like, ah, man, what's, am I remembering right? Like there's, there's enough that doesn't really work for me. Um, that, but I mean, it's four and a half. I, I love this movie a lot. Um, what I found, so this I, what I realized is there there are three I, I really enjoy even even a goblet of fire I like I I like more than I dislike, uh, but this is a, a franchise that has a very high average and within the franchise though, there are there are three films in it that I'm like these are just phenomenal movies by any standard, um, but I did change it up this this ranking because of just how blown away my most recent, the last viewing of Half-Blood Prince was. So I, I go number one, Prisoner of Azkaban. I think this time, I also had a better viewing of Half-Blood Prince because I had to separate this viewing of Deathly Hallows Part 1 uh, in two different days. And I always hate having to do that. But because of the, just my experience of this one, I go number one, Azkaban. Number two, Half-Blood Prince. Number three, um, the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Number four, Chamber of Secrets. Number five, The Order of the Phoenix. Number six, The Sorcerer's Stone. And number seven, um, The Goblet of Fire. Respectable. I, I have no qualms about it. And to be honest, like this, again, after this most recent viewing, I think those top three are just like so very much the top three that like order them how you want. I Because I, I saw somebody put Order of the Phoenix before this rewatch. I saw them put it as their number one. And I'm like... Get out of town. You're nobody's you're not impressing anybody. Uh, oh wait, hold on, I said Order of the Phoenix. I meant Half Blood Prince. My bad. I saw somebody <laughs> put Half Blood Prince as number one. And I was like, you're you're just trying to be cool, whatever. And then on the rewatch, I was like, I don't I could see that. I love this movie now. That's so, a really good movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so for me, I give it four stars. Um and I, I it would have been four and a half if it weren't for the you know the the 20 minutes in the the start that we talked about and for me like that that last extra half start of five starts is it's more like oh this film is transcendent it's never a knock against the film like i don't ex- go into movies expecting them to you know, to, to you know to, to change my world so it's oh it's, it's a really really good movie with you know a, a slightly rocky start um so my ranking for the series so far is i uh, one prisoner of azkaban two De- half blood prince three deathly hells part one four chamber of secrets 
five Order of the Phoenix, six Sorcerer's Stone, and seven Goblet of Fire, which I believe is identical to yours, James. The surprise for me this this time, this watch through, is that um the Half-Blood Prince uh, rose up two full rankings. It used to be underneath Chamber of Secrets. It's that Jim Broadbent magic, man. That that man just elevates and, uh, again, Somehow that that movie, how it was able to be as gorgeous as it is and like that not be what I remember. I don't know how that happened. That like, cave on this rewatch, sequences. I was like, do what? That cave sequences. The cave sequences, that beautiful golden hue to everything. I'm like, wait, why? This movie has been freaking beautiful this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like that, the... That film gets so much credit for like how did Warner Brothers, you know, agree to give two hundred fifty million dollars to make this weird, you know, somber mood piece. But I think that kind of applies to this film as well. It is so wildly outside the norm yeah. of you know what blockbusters are. That's the thing, Harry. It's so weird because like as as a whole. The legacy of Harry Potter kind of fits into the legacy of other big franchise movies where you're like, oh, it's it's this big, you got your, like, every release is this big tentpole blockbuster. And then whenever you, like, invest yourself in the series and you're watching them one after the other, you're like, they just did Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince, or no, sorry, they just did the Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows Part 1, like, back to back. These two different movies are, like, they they're what they released right like how how did how did these two come out in that close succession there's so unconventional for the genre so as far as the box office um it earned 296 million domestically and 680 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 977 million worldwide it stands at number three under deathly house part two and the sorcerer's stone and it stands at number four in the series domestically but uh, as i said before it's in that stretch of goblet um of uh, Goblet of Fire, Half-Blood Prince, and Order of the Phoenix, where all four films are made within like $12 million of each other. As far as the uh, the uh, 2010 box office, it stands at number three worldwide underneath Toy Story 3 and Alice in Wonderland. How did Alice in Wonderland beat this movie? I think it made a, I think it made a billion dollars. And does it, have, I, have you ever met a single person in this world who likes that movie? You know, it's rare that I've met people who've seen it. <laughs> Like, like Avatar gets mocked, but I think most people are like, yeah, it's fine. This one, I think everyone thinks is, I, I've never met somebody who doesn't think it's bad. It's, it's just bizarre. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was riding on Avatar's coattails with a, with a 3D and all of that. And uh, domestically, it stands at number five uh, in 2010, underneath Toy Story 3, Alice in Wonderland, Iron Man 2, and uh, Twilight Eclipse. How did a Twilight beat this thing? Oh my gosh. As far as the critical reception, it received a somewhat muted positive response from critics. Uh, it holds a 77 on Rotten Tomatoes and a 65 on Metacritic. Uh, the film's grim tone was alternately a source of praise or criticism, depending on the critic. Um, some people found the tone you know, engrossing and refreshing. Others thought it was just dour and miserable, that the, the, the series had lost all of its initial magic, which, yes, it had, and that's the point. That's the point. Good job. You're critiquing. Um... <laughs> And the, the, I was reading through the reviews. There's a lot of commentary on how, by this point, the series has become just completely impenetrable to people who ha who aren't already deeply familiar with the franchise. And I think that's true. These films, I I know a lot of people who've watched who've watched who love the series and have never read the books, and I I almost don't entirely understand it just because of how much of the books I have to bring to them. I do wish I could wipe my mind and watch a 
like without any any knowledge of it and see see what it's like i just want to know because it's impossible to completely remove my knowledge of it i want to wipe my mind to read the books again that's what i want to do that's true <laughs> So all in all, it's one of the lowest rated in the series, uh, not including the Fantastic Beast films. But however, the audience ratings on various sites like Letterboxd and IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, all that, the audience ratings aren't noticeably lower than like the series average. But it, but it critically, it did seem to be a little less effusive. Um, as far as awards, it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Visual Effects and uh, Best Production Design slash Art Direction, but it lost to Inception and Alice in Wonderland which is a hideous film. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. Um, <laughs> they lost to Timber and just being Timber. Uh, and you know what really is a crime? Not a single film in this series has won a Best Production Design Oscar. Uh, Wait, what? No, it's ridiculous. It's like one of the most visually distinct film series of all time. Yeah, it was nominated five times throughout the series. Uh, however... I wouldn't, I mean, Craig Stewart has already won three Oscars before this series, but come on. The series hasn't won those. Um, so moving to, to talking about a uh, legacy again, this one is often called boring by just the filthy unwashed masses. Um, and then you get the, the usual criticisms as far as, oh, you know, it's a part one, it's half a story. There's, you know, it's a, it's got a cliffhanger. There's no Ooh. resolution, no emotional, you know, emotional catharsis. Um, personally, those, that's, those critiques don't really bother me. Like, I don't go in, I don't go into this film expecting those things. So I'm not disappointed. Like it says part one in the title. So like when it ends, I'm like, yes, figures. Yeah. (laughs) Empire Strikes Back is my favorite Star Wars film, but it's not uh, worse for being incomplete. I was about to bring that up. So I love Joss Whedon, but I, I hated when he brought up that as like a criticism to Empire Strikes Back when he's like, he talked about how a movie needs to and I, like needs to be able to stand on its own and like i feel like that kind of gave more people credibility to to use that idea i i put zero stock in the whole well if we're comparing two movies and they're both basically perfect and one is kind of ends on a cliffhanger or it doesn't complete the story and like this other one by being self-contained like a new hope is my favorite star wars and whenever like i say that to somebody who agrees and like yeah and plus it's completely self-contained it's its own I'm like no 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 i couldn't care less about that it's it's perfect but movies being able to be self-contained versus movies intentionally framed as part one of two like it fulfilled its job as a part one to perfection so what what else i don't know so yeah i don't th- this whole whether it's boring or it's it's half a story and now because it's become i think we have to keep in mind that like franchise franchise viewership is different from like a cinephile you know like and not always of course but like if you have the expectation like gabe said it's part one it's in the title if you have the expectation that this is a part of an ongoing narrative, then it's unfair to hold that standard that it has to be a completely self-contained story because the very nature of what it's trying to accomplish is different than a standalone film. Exactly. So, you know, and Star Wars, like A New Hope is a self-contained film, but that was before it was even a franchise, you know, so... Yeah, obviously, A New Hope has to be 
for the context of its time, you know, but Empire Strikes Back, they knew there was going to be a sequel. They have the luxury of being able to have a stopping point. And I think there's something to be said for a high quality franchise film to be able to entice you to see another one, you know? So, and in such a bold way, no less. Yeah. I mean, and, and part, part of the easy solution is, you know, the, the, the trope of the dark middle chapter, um, you know, this is like the dark penultimate chapter, but you know, the principle applies here. Like if you want people to, to come back, you give them such a low point that they, they're wondering how do they get out of this, you know? And mm-hmm. I think this does that extremely well. Yeah. And, and then this, this film is kind of blamed for the trend of splitting the final book in a YA series in, into two parts. Um, you know, Twilight did it, Hunger Games, the Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> then you have the, the, the poor uh, uh, Divergent series that were the final book Allegiant. They had the first one, it came out in bombs, so they just didn't make the second one. <gasps> um, that happened? But yeah, that, that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. not know that that's the most funny slash depressing thing <laughs> in the world. It, that, that pretty much killed off the YA craze for good. Um, also killed off the, the splitting one book into two movies thing as well. Until Dune. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Come on, Denny. <laughs> And I, I, I worried that's going to be a disaster as well. Uh, it's going to go the way of Allegiant. <laughs> Speaking of tragedy. the and ca- camping trips, <laughs> uh, um, yes, like that—that's—that's that's part of its legacy, kind of the general disdain among film fans of that of that trend. Um, as far as its legacy within the Harry Potter series. I feel like like it's one of the less well liked. It does seem to kind of lean towards the bottom of a lot of the rankings I looked at, but I, I think like Half Blood Prince, it also has a pretty strong contingent of supporters, um, like us out there, you know, fighting the good fight. Uh, but is, is that your y- y'all's impression as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I it's it's not crazy often. It's certainly not the norm to see it super high, but. It also feels like when people like it, it's rare that it's like, oh yeah, that's. I think that one's pretty good actually. It's like, it's usually top three, top three or like bottom three. Like it's never, it's never. I feel like Order of the Phoenix, oftentimes will get like pretty high, but it also has a pretty strong amount of like, it's right there in the middle, super well liked. But I usually see this on like one end or the other, and it usually it's like it's like a a magnet with part two where i usually see those kind of separate where people see part two as like finally this is like the this is the final move like the final story this is how you got to go and and then there are the people who really like the slowness who are like of course you just went all battle for your last movie like second to last yeah like i, I, I see that i'm a, it's funny because I, I i i think i hold part two in higher regard than complete polarizing but I, I am of the camp that part one is a better film altogether. Um, Which is pretty rare. Yeah. yeah I think it's notably opinion. better. I think so too. And, and part of that to me is that, you know, it seems cliche because it, it is all action on the back half. And there are some great character moments within it. Don't, don't shout me while I'm preaching. <laughs> there's some, there's some good stuff there, you know, and I'm not in any way saying that it doesn't have it. 
but I think uh, there is a big section there in the middle where it's just like, okay, there's a lot happening, but at the same time, zero progress is taking place in this film. And it feels like, it doesn't feel like this, this book has been broken in half. It feels like it was broken in two thirds and then a final third. Listen, yeah. Ryan, are you campaigning to be a guest on the final one? We've already got that slot filled. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm no, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I'll, 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 I'm really long-winded say, way of saying that I think the split really benefited Deathly Hallows Part 1 and not fully crippled, but hindered Part 2 a little bit. 100%. And this will be the last of the little anecdotes before Gabe just ends the call. Uh, it all started in my childhood. <laughs> I remember I was seven at the beginning. No, but I had the same thought because, like I said, Deathly Hallows, the book, was pretty fresh in my mind watching this. And I remember trying to guess when we were going to, like, where they were going to stop it. And I remember this. I'm like, oh, we got to that and then that and then that. Oh, what, what are they leaving for part two? Um, and so when we got to part two, I was like, yeah, they part one is a more natural start finish. Part two definitely feels like Here's, we're padding it out a bit. And so in the split, I definitely feel like, despite popular consensus, uh, I feel like part two drew the short straw. Yeah, I'd agree, but that's, this is definitely the minority opinion. Um, that movie is very beloved <laughs> by most people. Um, I still so, love it. Like I, I do too. Let that be known. I think it's great. It, and it's, I will talk about how great I think it is in the next episode. Yeah, I... I I, I, I mean, this is y'all's podcast, so I don't care how much hate you get for me saying things. But, but I, I wanted to. Be... We've never had an unpopular opinion before. <laughs> but, I, but I want to be justified in their hate. Like, don't, don't, don't hate these guys or me because we're we're saying we hate Deadly Hallows Part Two. That's not what's being said here. That's what Ryan's saying, and his email is at. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forward them all to you, James. And... Damn it. <laughs> All right, uh, so Ryan, uh, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, as always, this was a blast. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and if people want to hear your voice online more, where can they find you? Yeah, um, you can hear my voice, but it, it would be better to actually watch the videos. <laughs> the Raw Quiz Show on YouTube. Trust me, it's better as audio. <laughs> I'm sure it would be entirely too confusing to just listen to, but I do recommend <laughs> watching The Raw Quiz Show. We are between seasons. It, that's right. It does take place in seasons. It is a trivia game show week to week. Um, there is a elimination element to it. There's three full seasons on YouTube right now. Um, check it out. There's, a, there's actually an entirely magical themed episode that has a bit of Harry Potter to it. So, Season one, uh, I appear kind of a fan favorite, you know. <laughs> And get knocked out was pretty controversial. Season uh, two as well. Yeah, season, I was out pretty early on. You don't have to really watch those. <laughs> and so where can people follow you, James? You can follow me over on Letterboxd. I'm there at JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can find the both of us as admins over on the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group on Facebook. And you can also find me on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, 
where I put out these uh, movie-based music videos and trailer mashups and stuff like that. All right, so next week, uh, we finish up the OG Harry Potter series with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Um, one of the most beloved films in the series and uh, one of the most you know beloved franchise enders of all time as well, or at least series enders. Um, I may or may not entirely agree with that sentiment. You'll have to listen to find out. So until next week, we will see you in the end. Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. Dobby has come to save Harry Potter.